0: Sorry, please, let's use this time, now seriously, (laughs) for uh, give me first, first I give you all the rights, Stalinist rights to you. If I get lost, don't be disappointed. I'm in a bad mood. You can cut it, uh, uh, montage it, whatever. I give you all the Stalinist freedom. Second thing, please, to avoid any misunderstandings, give me precise instructions if there are any written, unwritten rules to follow. You know what I want to say, no? Like, uh, how is it? I got the message. You begin, you, uh, an idiot, I include myself, introduces me, gives the word to another idiot who asks (laughs) questions, blah, blah, blah. I get all that. The public is, did I get it concretely? People who are well disposed towards theory but maybe not fully professionally acquainted with high-level philosophical speculation so i can talk to uh uh, about serious stuff but not too technically am i correct sure but 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 with us too like we don't want you we
1: know normally you're always trying to be as clear for the general public but when it comes to The theoretical questions we have, so many of us are students of you. We we've read so many of your books. You know, we're 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 well versed in Lacanian Hegelian theory, and so you don't have to hold back if you
0: want to. You know, I got it. I got it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because I have many problems now, uh, 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 stances which may appear politically incorrect, but I really think uh, one should uh, take them into account. There are now, incidentally, some new stuff, leftist against political correctness and vokeness, but I don't totally trust it. It's too standard liberal. Did you hear about this German-speaking philosopher of ethics, Jürgen Neumann? Uh-uh. She now published a book recently with an open title: "Why Woke Is Not Left" or something like that. It's basically I agree, but it's but her point against wokeness is simple liberal universalism. You know, like particular identities. No, we need universal human rights. Blah blah blah. Oh oh oh! It's not as simple as that because we as at least indebted to Marx, have to be very careful here. You know, there is also this kind of, how should I put it, concrete universality in the sense of every universality would be questioned with regard to its particular biases and so on. And he is just doing a useful job, but may I put it in Stalinist terms, he is, uh, 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 how do you say, this will be so evil. I hope she will not listen to this. She's more or less a useful idiot or a good fellow traveler, we, which means we need her now, but at a later stage, one never knows she will have to be purged. you know. But okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much. Do you have any messages of what I should be attentive to now in advance?
1: Well, I mean, basically, what i am going—I'm the idiot who's going to introduce you,
0: and so. Oh, I introduce who is the mega idiot? Okay, the mega idiot—it's me. But who is the idiot who asks the? Well, question? yeah,
1: we're Jackian, so you've made us idiots, so it's
0: all your fault. <laughs> oh, I will put another term which I take very seriously. You are not a complete idiot, which I'm—I'm I'm also not a complete idiot. I don't think. There are only two types of people, complete idiots and not complete idiots, and that's the highest that we can get. The non-complete idiot. (laughs) No, no, uh, uh, not complete idiots in the sense of uh, not idiots at all. Sorry, I haven't yet encountered this type of human beings, you know? (laughs) Yeah,
1: basically what I'm going to do, I'm going to give a a brief introduction and then We, we, you know, we want you to elaborate. We want you to have time to do that. But we do each have, I don't know, two, three main questions we want to get to. And, um, you know, just let you riff just off Just to
0: of warn you, I'm in a bad mood, blah, blah. Not because of you. Here it was a heat wave, flooding flooding. I, have, I am, uh, is this strange weather when from a heat wave you pass all of a sudden to... Cold weather, so I'm all the time with some kind of allergies. So, again, the okay. point is do whatever you wanted me, cut it short. Uh, 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 I, I, uh, I've said that you don't have somebody to imitate my voice so that you could even simply. Did we just use chat, chat GPT to have, it, to have it talk another with? guy to say what I am not aware, of, but I really want to say according to your judgment. You know? Yeah, yeah.
2: Everything. Hey. You want to all right, something? I want to see if this, can you all hear me okay on this computer?
0: Yes. Sir. I do, I see you and I hear you.
2: All right, everybody. Um, Slavoj, it's so good to have you here with us. Thank you so much for joining.
0: Thank you, Slavoj. Um, I'm grateful cool to, to you. I appreciate very much what you are doing, yeah.
2: Thank you, Slavoj. Um, so everybody, welcome to the official book and books and tour launch. For Theory Underground, Um, I'm holding up the books, but I guess they kind of got uh, the computers making them not show up. But anyway, we've got the Time Energy book and the Underground Theory book. Both of them are now available as of today on Amazon. And uh, today is the day that we begin the tour across the United States and back again. And then we'll go into Europe in April of next year. We're kind of planning that one out a little bit more ahead of time. But this tour, uh, basically, it's... Our first real four way four four way way into the world. And uh Slavoj came just to sort of give us that boost and to say, you know, good luck on your travels, and so thank you, it means the world. And Mikey and I basically we kind of have you for an hour. We just have some questions we've always wanted to ask you. And so um, to I'm about-
0: you, but I hope we agree that. If I don't collapse, one hour is for us Marxist a dialectical notion, not a mechanical materialist notion. Yeah. You know, like you, this is not you know the lesson for quantum physics, you can stretch the time and so on. You know, <laughs> th-
2: this is not fixed time, this is variable time, right? Traditional, yeah. time, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, some yeah, sim- yeah. the time of symbolic exchange. So, um, okay, so everybody, welcome. Um, I'm a little frazzled, I'm not going to. Uh, say very much about Theory Underground or the books themselves, because we have speakers who will talk about that after this interview. But I will just say that the the Theory Underground is a platform. It's a teaching platform. It's a social media site. There's an app for it. It's also a publishing house. And when Slavoj found out that it's a publishing house, he said, well, I'll give you a manuscript then. And so he gave, he gifted that to me. And I said, OK, well, then it would be unfair of me not to open this up to some others. And so other people who've been with Theory Underground in the courses, uh, who wrote really good papers for some of the courses, uh, they get an opportunity to be in the volume. And then also some other colleagues also are in the volume. And some of the names in the volume created a lot of backlash. Some people were not very happy, apparently, about some of the people, including Slavoy. Um, And he's been canceled a few times this year. And so we've come to his de- defense for at least a couple of things, maybe not everything, but I'm just kidding. But the, I don't know. I, I, I just, I, I think that all I really need to say about theater underground is wait for Nance and Anne after this, they will both explain what the books are, explain what the tour is. But for right now, um, Michael Downs is somebody that I've been in dialogue with for 10 years. Uh, he's a warehouse worker uh, in the, Raytown, Missouri. He's uh, probably the most enthusiastic supporter of Slavoj Zizek that I've ever known. He teaches Slavoj better than anyone else I've ever heard. Um, I've learned a lot about Slavoj and Lacan through Mikey. Mikey that
0: taught. So maybe I should call him if I don't understand something from my old books. You should. <laughs> no, no, i should hear a
1: transgression to you.
0: You definitely <laughs> yeah. should. Yeah. <laughs>
2: And so basically what I thought would be cool is because a lot of people are hearing um, from Mikey about Zizek for the first time today. I just wanted to give Mikey an opportunity to talk about why he cares about the theory of Slavoj Zizek. So Mikey, go ahead and take it away. You can introduce Slavoj.
1: Okay. Yeah. I I mean, there's somebody in philosophy who needs no introduction at Slavoj Zizek, but um, I think a lot of the time who he is in, in the world of philosophy gets obfuscated by his media image. And for us, most importantly, Slavoj Žižek is the guy who wrote Sublime Object of Ideology, Tearing with the Negative, For They Know Not What They Do, Ticklish Subject, Parallax View, Less Than Nothing. Slavoj for us is a serious philosopher working at the highest levels of the German idealist tradition, mixing it with Lacanian psychoanalysis. And so for those of us who are in underground theory and, and and big into philosophy online, he's primarily a serious philosopher. And I think that gets lost a lot of the time um, because he is so entertaining. He has so many great examples from pop culture, but we've seen how the media wants to turn him into the Elvis of cultural theory or of philosophical clown. And that's not who he is for us. He's he's on that level of (laughs) Hegel, Kant, Schelling, and, you know, Freud, Lacan. And so that's how we engage with Slavoj's work is um as, as a serious theoretical position. And for us, it's primarily two things. It's how Slavoj has taken Lacanian theory and Hegelian ontology and worked at it book after book after book, refining this philosophical paradigm, this philosophical view. And that is without a shadow of a doubt, Slavoj's longest lasting impact on the history of philosophy is going to be how he read Hegel through Lacan and read Lacan through Hegel. And it's very easy whenever you see somebody talking Lacan and Hegel to act like it's just Lacan or or it's just, he- no, Slavoj did that. He made that connection. And that's where his uh, lasting contribution is going to be, is in this ontology of extimacy, this ontolo- ontology of Dialectical contradiction, and that's where we primarily focus. And I mean, the second thing, of course, is the theory of ideology, which has been so influential on me and on us. Because the problem with traditional ideology is that it always situated the problem at the level of ideas or representations or meaning. And what Slavoj figured out using Lacan is like, no, it's there's this facet of enjoyment, this this thing with jouissance that keeps us locked into certain ideological formations. It's the glue that keeps us hooked on ideology. And you have to get beyond thinking about ideology as just merely false consciousness or um, deceptive representation and understand it as a libidinal effect. And that's where it's been so influential on me. And just on a, I mean, on a personal note, I mean, that's why he matters theoretically, but I want to say why he matters to me personally is <clears throat> during the pandemic um my 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 mom she always o- she had owned a uh, small business since i was a kid and the reason i had a lot of time and energy to work on philosophy is because i helped out the the family business during the pandemic the the business closed it shut down we lost it and i had to figure out how to <laughs> go into typical wage labor and I got a job as a bouncer working at a bar, a barcade, and...
0: Are you strong enough to do it? I would be afraid to do this.
1: It's terrible. Like, I absolutely hate wage labor. It's
0: the worst thing in the world to me. No, 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 sorry. I was more concrete. I thought about uh, bouncing. This means you were throwing out or supposed to throw out... Yeah, we got to break up fights.
1: Yeah. Or, or make sure oh that God. we refuse fights or whatever. But here's the funny thing, Slavoj. I think... So our... our... The mutual friend, Todd McGowan, Todd's basically like my teacher in all things, Lacan, Zizek, Hegel, mm-hmm. And uh, I, Todd means the world to me, but I, I told him about this and uh, I, I, he might've told you at some point, but so my form of inherent transgression at my job as a bouncer is, so they were real strict on us, carting everybody who comes in and I got tired of it. It was so boring just to sit there for eight hours doing it what I would end up doing is I would just start reading your books on my phone and throughout my whole shift. So I would read Parallax View or Sublime Object mm-hmm. or whatever over and over and just kind of bullshit, act like I'm carding. But I had more important things to do, which was read your books. But seriously, on a personal level, reading your main theoretical works is what got me through this incredibly rough patch of my life. And so, you know, on the one hand, it was, you know, a kind of therapy in a sense. It, it got me through my hard times, but in the other, it was my form of inherent transgression where I'm like, I, I hate this fucking job. So, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to read Slavoj all night and uh pass the time that way. And so that's really where my understanding of you came from was through reading your books being my form of inherent transgression at my shitty job. And so that's, that's just, you know, I, I, I again, it was just, um, it was really Im- important for me. It, like it really got me through. But um, the last thing I'll just say. So um, I, I I came up with a joke for you. I know how much you love jokes. Jokes are so so central to your work. But it, it is if a joke.
0: are uh, politically incorrect, but this is very difficult to do. Politically incorrect, vulgar, but in a sense that they are not really anti-feminist. Blah blah. You know. Yeah. The problem is to be apparently vulgar, but with a much more ambiguous, finer method. So please yeah. do it.
1: Okay, well, I, I not to disappoint. I, this isn't really a, a, a political joke. It's more of just those of us who are in the world of Zizekian theory, right? So yeah. um, there's a funny thing that you, you did in a couple of your books where you spelled Todd's last name with an extra A. You turned it into MacGowan instead of McGowan. And um, yeah, yeah. I was joking with Todd about it. So here's the little joke. Um, uh, why does Slavoj Žižek purposely misspell Todd McGowan's last name as Matt Gowan? Because Žižek really has a thing for that little a.
0: That's politically correct. Perfectly done. I agree that I insert the small a, you know? no. <laughs> So, um... Although, You know why I also admire Todd? Not because I always agree with him, but precisely because I don't always agree with him. And that's what I also expect, uh, expect from you. With all my inner circle friends, for example, here in Slovenia, Alenka, Zupancic, Mladen, Dolar, and so on, we are... The, best friends personally, but whoever reads us closely will soon notice that in a very noble, gentle way, there is a deep polemics between the three of us going on all the time. For example, the last book which really hit me as a kind of epiphany, Alenka's Antigone's Parallax. Let's cut the bullshit This book is a friendly, polemical reply to my reading of Antigone. She takes into account my three versions and adds a fourth version. And the reason I, that's the highest sign of friendship that I can express, the reason I really hate her is that uh, she instantly converted me, convinced me. The way she reads Antigone, which is precisely the anti-liberal Judith Butler way. You know, the standard reading is uh, that uh, for Antigone Polinacos stands for all those excluded, trans, gay, whatever. This is for me Just radicalized uh, liberalism. You know, this typical liberal worry, but it's our liberal notion of universal right, really owning all inclusive, blah, blah, blah. But again, that's not, she converted me, that's not what Antigone does. What she does is the exact opposite. You remember those famous lines, which are the key, although I also quote them, but, he gives the full reading where he says, if it were for my sons, for my husband, blah, 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 let them rot. I wouldn't care. It's only because for my brother that I'm doing this. And then in a wonderful way, another secret of her reading. One would have expected a vulgar psychoanalytic reading. Yeah, of course, incest sister, brother. No, she doesn't go into this, but she does talk about incest, but in a much more refined way, in the sense that I shouldn't lose too much time, but that uh, the topic of incest, it's not simply, ultimately, it's not at all about having sex with your parents or brothers or sisters or children or whatever. It's about a certain short circuit, which is a constitutive illusion implied by our language itself. And then she, not to lose time, I'm sorry, uh, links this to the wonderful old saying in my new book. There will be a long chapter on it. You know, this old paradox, which she rehabilitates or reuses, the old joke. Uh, 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 explorers come into a tribe and ask them, are there still any cannibals among you? The answer is, no, yesterday we ate the last one. Isn't it, that's my, that's to provoke you, isn't something similar going on with cancel culture at its worst? We should use here the Lacanian tension between what Lacole calls l- l- enunciated, the enunciated topic of what you are toing, talking about and process of enunciation, what you are doing, what is inscribed into the very mode how you are doing it. That's, for me, the problem of cancel culture. The topic, what they want to assert is diversity and inclusion. But then, all they are actually doing is excluding people who don't fit their definition of inclusion. So it's a clear case of of how, with their very discursive practice, they exclude more and more. People and for a Hegelian like me, this is an elementary paradox of the tension between universal and particular. That's my problem with cancel culture. What we need today, and here I deeply sympathize with you, is the inclusionary leftist politics. We need popular fronts. How to bring together women, workers. Uh, those who fight uh, uh, for the preservation of our environment, and so on and so on. But isn't, if I may put it in this naive way, the spirit of cancel culture, precisely the spirit of permanent suspicion and exclusion? And well, what do you think they, about how Todd links it to superego?
1: He thinks like what the left is caught up in is a kind of superegoic morality that it's so based on bombarding everybody with guilt, that it actually undermines yes. what we're doing.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And uh, I would, I totally agree what Todd is saying here. And just to, I'm very sorry, I have some kind of allergy. Just to uh, uh, bring it even maybe a step uh, further, I agree with Ed's uh, thought, sorry, more general point that uh, the typical right-wing mode of enjoyment is is that of exclusion Mm -hmm. even in the grand scheme of you exclude jews or whomever and so on and so on like in anti-semitism and and this is for me uh, 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 (coughs) sorry this is for me the problem how uh, the it's complex, more theoretical, but as you told me, I will nonetheless... Go ahead, do it. Go, go uh, for it. Now, the logic of exclusion is the very opposite of class struggle. Class struggle does not imply the logic of exclusion. Why not? Ah, because exclusion is always self-affirmative. The problem of the anti semites other races... Is how to uh, is how to preserve our identity. A foreign body is presented as the disturbing factor. So let's exclude them, Jews or other races, and we will assert our identity. While the central point of Marxist notion of class struggle is that what you question. Undermine in class struggle is your own fixed identity as it is conferred on you by the existing legal order. Here, although I don't follow them all the way, I agree with those feminists, but I don't want to go into it now, who claim that uh, against this pseudo heartline feminism, feminism is not about asserting feminine identity, and then exclude men or whoever poses a threat to it. But it's this exclusion, of course, we have to fight enemies, should be always accompanied by a self-reflexive twist. To what extent is our identity already part of the situation that we are trying to get rid of? I'm coming here back to your... Back to your. Uh, sorry, do I talk too much? No, 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 you're doing really good. I just want to, I don't want you to
2: say our thing. We have to say it ourselves. Is that we, because as you're blue-
1: getting at something we, we wanted to ask you about?
0: As blue collar workers. I'm very sorry if I <laughs> went. So no, you're far. good. You're good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, listen. I like what you did now. I need to be very brutal. That's why uh, you, Mike, you are the only one, as far as I can see, properly dressed in black. I need a male or female uh, uh, figure of domina, you know. Domina <laughs> the sense of master. Somebody has to whip me and cut me short. So yes, right. I well, Dave, yeah. Dave, so the what, point Yeah. So Say what you got, Dave.
2: So just, it's something Mike and I have been talking about a lot because, you know, Theory Underground, it's by and for, like, blue-collar, working-class people, people who aren't don't really have upward mobility, blah, blah, blah. When people hear this, they think, Oh, OK, it's like they think in terms of identity politics. So they basically think of in terms of working class identity politics, we're trying to be seen as workers. The, what you were just getting at is that, no, we're not trying to be seen as workers. As workers, we're saying we advocate for our own our own self-abolition. We don't want there to be a working class. We don't want class.
1: to be wage laborers. We want to destroy this identity.
0: We're trying right. to
1: free ourselves from this identity.
0: Right. Right. Is this a question already, or do we want to finish well, it? I mean, because- I mean yeah. but doesn't that get
1: at the heart of what you? I mean, because both you and Todd, you have this thing in common. You're both champions of universalist politics, and so the difference is a real universalist politics is going to have to center the movement around a, a contradiction, antagonism at the heart of society that all of us are struggling from. You call it an antagonism or, or um, uh, contradiction. Todd will call it a lack. But both of you are are Tapped into this thing where it's like no, there's a, a there's a deadlock in society that everybody is struggling from, and if you focus it on one identity or the other, that universal dimension gets lost. And if we're going to change society on a universal scale, we all have to get tapped into this fundamental antagonism or lack that we're we're all dealing with.
0: Here uh, again, a very friendly. I wouldn't even. Distance, but fifth of accent from Todd. Okay, you know Todd MacGowan with an A. You know my Todd. whom I appreciate very much. You know uh, my problem with using the term "lack" as synonymous or in the same line with uh, with with antagonism and so on is that I the the basic lesson for me is that. Lack always appears in the form of excess surplus. Mm -hmm. The two are two sides of the same point, especially apropos of antagonism. Look, this is one of my now things. As you challenge me, will go a little bit, will get a little bit more complex. Uh, All intelligent Marxists are absolutely against these primitive evolutionary notions that we have class antagonism, which is usually blurred by other classes, blah, blah, blah. But then, in a revolutionary situation or in the objective tendency, we will have a clear-cut distinction. It's the exploited and the other side. We will get the pure binary opposition. No, we never get that. Antagonism means that precisely The difference is never a clear difference between two opposed Poles. And to Marx, this was clear. You don't get Marx used in an ambiguous way here. He can also be criticized, the term of lumpenproletariat. Marx was, I think, too dismissive towards them. They, lumpenproletarians, were, for him, potential traitors those who, in a crucial moment, can serve as a popular base for those in power. Mark Stroma was here, of course, the uh, 1848 revolution and its aftermath, when precisely the lumpen proletariat was the immediate material support of the coup d'etat of Napoleon the Little, Napoleon the Third. III. I- think that here things are today getting more complex. First element to add, and uh, my other friend, Adrian Johnston even establishes here a link with Hegel, who, in his not simply conservative, but very refined critique of the uh, English-British new Election law in 1831 or went which expanded electoral base, warns against uh, uh, what Adrian Johnson calls lumpen bourgeoisie. You know, that opposed to lumpen proletarians, those discarded vulgar classes, we are getting more and more a bourgeoisie which is not even a proper bourgeoisie. Look, now I will say something horrible. But does a person like Trump, Donald, even deserve the the title of great bourgeoisie? No, sorry, great bourgeoisie, with all my opposition to them, had a certain, under quotation marks, but nonetheless, creative function of large social organization and so on, No wonder that in the last years of his sanity, not that then he became crazy, but he then became too ill. 21, 22, after Bolsheviks won won civil war, Lenin was extremely, maybe even too much, fascinated by big uh, American corporate bosses who came to visit Soviet Union to make deal. He saw that Bolsheviks need A socialist forum of these large corporate managers. So, what I'm saying, I didn't lose my thread, is that today's new oligarchs are, in a sense, lumpen bourgeoisie, because we should be honest with all the exploitation and so on. At some point, big corporate capitalists did incredible things, large industrial organization, even for their own profit. Some kind of workers' safety. Do you know that, for example, the big example from Germany, the the big conservative, uh, 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 Otto Bismarck, was the first, earlier than England, to establish some kind of health care, retirement, and so on, and so on. So the point is that... uh, Uh, And I then try to transfer this point also onto sexual difference that class struggle is not simply we against us, it's a struggle against all those who are somewhere in between, for for example, so-called middle classes or other struggles and so on and so on, without this complex situation where there are never just two agents, but always a third one. On many more, we don't get antagonism. We get a simple hierarchic opposition. And I think it's the same with sexual difference. Trans people are, for me, precisely this third element, element which embodies sexual antagonism as such. And this is just to finish, especially important for me today when uh, when uh, we talk about working class. Yes, we should insist on working class for a couple of reasons. The first being that I don't agree with theory of Ernesto Laclau, Chantal Mouffe and others, who simply put working class into the series of other antagonisms as equal working class racism working class struggle feminist struggle tolerance struggle and so on and so on no but nonetheless uh and here my good friend i'm honored to meet him alvaro garcia linera the ex vice president on bolivia developed it well how the key to the revolution or successful, relatively, transformation of Bolivia, was they got it that today working class is not just workers in the old sense of wage workers. I respect your stance here, absolutely. But for example, I'm sorry if I repeat stuff known to many of you. In my country, Slovenia, as your beloved president X, it's brutal irony. Trump would have call it a small shit code of a country. In Slovenia, I a couple of times opposed strikes. People, go, oh, are you getting a right winger? No, because in specific Slovenian situation, who can afford to strike? Only the already privileged state employees. Those who work in private companies they don't have a chance to strike. If they organize a strike, the capitalists said, fuck off, we disband your factory, we move elsewhere whatsoever. It's only the relatively privileged state employees, policemen, doctors, judges, and so on. And so I think, to put it in Lenin's terms, that to be able to strike today, not it's not a general point, like uh, for precarious workers, though, who work for Amazon, blah, 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 trade unions and strike would be a mega important thing. But there are situations when uh, strikes tend to become strikes of what Lenin called workers' aristocracy. Because the only effect in Slovenia of some successful strikes was that the already overpaid, Uh, upper-level surgeons and other top-paid doctors got even more, so ordinary nurses got less, there there were less new instruments bought, and so on and so on. So my point is not only working class, which, of course, still exists very strongly, not it exists in big Western countries, it exists in third-world countries, but... What about all this grey zone of unpaid and non not transparent for the state wage labor, which is even more exploitative? Like I don't know where you are, but from I was told from my friends in California uh, Mexican immigrants are crucial their illegal work in harvesting isn't yeah. there and so on, or in personal uh, a uh, uh, personal life, you hire them as uh, gardeners, taking care of your t- children, blah, blah, blah. And we have to somehow include, mobilize all this. Here, I'm sorry if I repeat an old point, but if we are addressing a broader public, it's crucial. Uh, the crucial point, and here the term working class becomes important, are new forums like, for example... Uh, 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 Uber. What's so horrible about Uber is that it blurs in its very uh, structure plus tension. Uber, the company, claims we are not capitalists. We just organize a contact between those who offer a service, those who own a car, and those who need a ride. So, uh, On the one hand, you usually own your own means of production, a car, a computer, whatever. And the ideology is then that we are all capitalists. Just, I don't have it, but I have a factory, fuck you, you have just a car or whatever. Exactly. But yeah. the idea is we are all small capitalists. And so... But th- this, on, this is a good point, because
1: we're, this, is, this gets at something we want to ask you about. So yeah, so Dave, hold on. Let's uh, because we got these these two main questions we want to get to. Dave, ask the, the your main one.
2: So my main question, and we were gonna do this last, but we decided, you know, it's so important. We want to see if you'll actually just, you know, what what you said before we started recording about how you kind of hold back from getting in, into the theoretical weeds, but that's kind of after just finishing a couple courses on your work that's where we want to go for a hot minute and so the question is a question of the ethics of psychoanalysis um when mikey was we'll doing his
1: Antigone, in- so it connects so. when mikey
2: was doing his introduction to you what he left out that is in the article he wrote for underground theory where he talks about how useful your concepts yeah. is. It's really understanding jouissance and drive and how if your drive gets hooked into certain things, you get jouissance from those things. That's not pleasure. It's the opposite of pleasure in a sort of sense, right? And so understanding how jouissance functions in the workplace is so important. Drive, though, if we understand correctly, is the, is almost like the enemy of desire. Like does, drive gets off on undermining whatever it is that you're desiring. And so in the ethics yeah. of psychoanalysis, the idea is, well, Kahn says you should never compromise on your desire. And then the th- the controversial thing that you say, according to Mikey, at least yeah, is yeah. that there's an inversion of that, that you say, no, don't compromise on drive. And so for me, my question then, cause I've been thinking about this for months. Um, you know, my drive oh, is I did, hooked into
1: I one thing. Just, just for, for somebody watching and Slavo, I know you don't, you don't like us quoting your books, but this is for everybody who's watching. You have this great line from looking awry. Let me read it just for context. You said, with regard to this relation between drive and desire, we could perhaps risk a small (laughs) justification of the Lacanian maxim of the psychoanalytic ethic, not to cede one's desire. Is not desire as such already a certain yielding, a kind of compromise formation, a metonymic displacement, Retreat a defense against intractable drive to desire means to give way on the drive. Insofar as we follow Antigone and do not give way on our desire, do we not precisely step out of the domain of desire? Do we not shift from the modality of desire into the modality of pure drive? Looking around page 172.
2: Dave, and then so my my question then is based in. Look, Mikey and I and a lot of the people at Theory Underground, we didn't really think that we were going to live to, to the age that we have. We didn't really think that we were going to survive. We've lost a lot of friends on the way to being where we are, to overdose, to uh other kinds of uh self-destructive behaviors. Why is it not showing me? Come on, what's going on here? All right. We've lost you. a lot, of, we've lost friends along the way who didn't see... Uh, ground relative to their drive, and so, but then for me and for Mikey, part of what gets us through the work week, part of what gets us like, uh, I mean, we our drive is hooked into philosophy, it's hooked into theory, it's hooked into for me organizing, and so obviously, well, that's good. I, I think that it's a lot better that it's that than say heroin or you know, cocaine, but you know, p- uh, people who haven't had the opportunity to develop that drive formation. Uh, it's sex, drugs, rock and roll, and if you just lean into that, it ends in a sh- you know a, a destruction not just of self but of relationships, of of family, and and it just causes a lot of heartbreak. And so I just feel like this is a delicate issue. It's a complicated issue, and I kind of just wanted to give you an opportunity to elaborate on your position.
1: Yeah, about like, the ethics, well, how do you, how do you at this point after all these years of like you were talking about Antigone with Alenka and I mean. You know, Todd's idea is that an ethics of desire would be in, like almost a Heideggerian resolute, in, 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 you know, stance on the fact we are always going to lack. We're never going to not be lacking. So it's a kind of embrace of our fundamental lack. But you've 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 gone back to the ethics of psychoanalysis so many times across your main works. Yeah. We just want to know where you're at with it and what you think the ethics of psychoanalysis actually is. And how do we prevent it from just... Being a kind of affirmation of the worst forms of self destruction? Uh, it's an
0: excellent question. And I am, I, in advance, I apologize if I will not fully answer it. But, uh, first, let me return to the point which I already made. Uh, I want to, in what you said, quoting Ted involves some kind of a primacy of lack. This, for me, if you say just this, comes just a little bit too close to what I often cynically call this poetry of lack, you know. you uh, This hysterical formula of whatever you give me, it's not that; It's never there. You always miss the true object. I, this, let's call it, uh, metonymy of object. This poetry of lack. At the end, you have to accept the lack and so on and so on. Is I must emphasize this. Just one side of the story. There is the opposite side of the story in Lacan himself, where uh, uh, where lack means also getting rid of an excess. The Uh, first appearance of antagonism, even at the level of individual psychic development, is an excess. I refer here to Lacan, but also to one who was not a pure Lacanian, but I think he'll elaborate at this point very well, Van Laplante, in his volume, Essays on Otherness, where he claims that uh, the lack that we experience, it's not Primarily our lack, in the sense of I don't know what I really want because when I get what I want, it's never that. The original lack is the lack of myself as subjectivity. It's what I am for the other. Laplante's idea is to put it very simply, already a small baby somehow guesses that others around him eventual brothers, sisters, uncles, mother, father have a certain libidinal investment in him, her, I prefer to say it. But it's impenetrable to him what this investment is. What do they see in me? What do they want from me? So the original form of of lack is I don't know what I am as an object for others and that's the original enigma why this enigma appears precisely as an excess of the others desire for me the other wants something from me but i never can guess i identify what the other see in me and so you're, you're, you're the story, and... Story, that's this like. of the unconscious is that because... And that's for planche the primordial form of unconscious, that the other also doesn't know what his feet want. That's the beginning of being human. When you see that the lack is not yours, so that you have an impenetrable other, no. The lack is in the other itself. So now this is very abstract, but this would have been my basic formula of ethics of psychoanalysis, not to betray, not your own lack. Because this poetic proposition, I always lack, I never get it, that's bullshit. That's usual pessimist wisdom. The crucial point is to transpose this lack into the figure of the big other itself. Society, God, or whatever, the, the, the lack is there. So I here, returning, I didn't lose the threat, to your question, desire drive, I oscillate here, I admit it. My first point here is now, I will not just criticize trans ideologies, but as I always refer here to Judith Butler, say something good about them, uh, you know, the problem with excess of juicons, it's not just that it's always missing, whatever we get, it's not that. But also that that uh, we never can get rid of it. As Judith Butler points out nicely, let's say you renounce, try to renounce juicons. You have a certain idea which is unacceptable for you of perverted, whatever sexual enjoyment, you renounce it. But then you begin to enjoy the very rituals, measures of exclusion. This is the standard That's surplus. Surplus, right? Yeah, yeah. So I go to the end here. There is no enjoyment without this surplus enjoyment. Enjoyment as such is a as such is a surplus. So uh, to go a step further, the the meaning in which I said that desire is also an escape, it's that in the drive you get caught into this closed loop of songs? Now, the desire is a reaction to the deadlock of this closed loop. You see it's suffocating, so you say, let's move the object to a beyond. We desire some X, we never get it. In the same way, I also say that that drive is an escape from the deadlock of desire desire is this desire for the always missing object the answer of drive is but what if i really desire this lack itself what the if the lack is not simply a lack but i enjoy this lack itself and i like repeating this lack that's how it's A very detailed point with how Lacan reached Freud's famous example of uh, for the dad, the child who plays. He doesn't simply want to keep the object, he enjoys, in the full sense of the term, the very disappearing and reappearing of the object. And I think this logic of enjoying the lack and all that, it's crucial to understand all the strange perversities – here I use the term in a strict way – going on in today's politics. We find this in certain forms of cancel culture, where the pleasure in discovering new and new transgressions to be cancelled is obvious, not to mention the, the right-wing populism which is full of obscene desires and so on and so on. So these are not just abstract theoretical points, So, but nonetheless, to come back to your point, my ultimate answer, it will not satisfy you now, would have been that there is a the parallel between desire and drive. Drive is an excess, desire is a lack. And they are like, two sides of the same coin. Say so they have an uh, estimate
1: gap. relation, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. But two points to a certain, I call it ontological gap. Okay. Gap which cannot be recaptured neither by desire nor by drive. In this sense, I agree with you that uh, that we shouldn't There was a tendency a couple of years ago, which is why when I will take power, I will first send myself to Gulag, a re-education camp. I was at some point years ago tempted by this idea of desire, a compromise, good drive. No, I agree with you. Totalitarianism at its purest has the structure of a drive, of this stupid close loop of satisfaction, and it's precisely the way you uh, described uh, your friends who lost their way. I think that only people who go to the end into whatever, alcoholism, drugs, and so on, they go to the end in assuming jouissance, and it's self-destructive. The problem that we have today, I don't have time to go into it, is that conservatives in some sense know this, they are aware of this, but they offer as the only solution a return to desire, but desire in this old Christian sense, desire is grounded in a prohibition. Unfortunately, even some Lacanians like Pierre Legendre, the lawyers, also Jacqueline Miller, follow this path. They say that if you fully abandon yourself to drive, it's self-destructions. So the formula proposed by Miller is, for me, a horrible one. So even if social prohibitions, the paternal law and so on, are not true, in the sense that they have no true foundation, We have to accept them as necessary. We have to act as if they are true. I find this formula horrible because I think this was already in my surplus enjoyment book. Or I forgot. I noticed that you know that Miller unknowingly quotes here Kafka when at the end of the trial Joseph K. asks the priest. But this means that the law is. uh, Fake a lie. The priest uh, answer answer is no. What matters with the law is not that it's true. Of course, it's not true, but that it it's necessary. This is for me the contemporary form of cynicism. You know, it's not true, but you are afraid that if you abandon this appearance, you get lost. Everything disintegrates. So. Uh, Let's uh so let's stick to it. And I think that I don't have yet a clear answer. I admit always my limitations where I don't think I found the final formula. That the great task of Lacan is precisely to avoid this choice, which is crucial in today's globalized so called falsely so called permissive avoid
1: avoid the choice of driver design.
0: Avoid the choice of uh, the ethics of drive, whatever it costs, go to the end. which is a suicidal loop. Well, think about it. So it if, if we let somebody just... Of prohibition. Like, the only enjoyment is you have a prohibition and you transgress it a little bit and so on and so on. I think, just to finish, that Lacan's answer to this is that in the opposition between sacrifice and desire, therefore Lacan not opposed. I will now very briefly, then I let you speak, quote an example which I quoted four or five times from that Neil Gaiman, you know, when he says what catastrophe is to fall in love. All your daily life is ruined, you are obsessed, but which means that love as unconditional desire, beyond the pleasure principle, is uh, in itself, a sacrifice. Sacrifice of your ordinary daily life and so on and so on. You ruin your daily life. But this type of sacrifice for a cause is how I read fidelity, the fidelity to a drive. Not sorry, to desire. Not to compromise your desire. So it's not that desire must be controlled by uh, some higher authority. Now you will say, but still, what if my desire is, sorry for the vulgarity, a desire to kill the Jews or to kill the Palestinians or whatever? My answer here is to return to what I already said, the big other. The ethics of desire means do not rely on any figure of the big other to, Guarantee it, and this figure can have many forms. Not just the obvious ideological form, God, divine order. It can be a naturalist forum
3: mm-hmm.
0: natural laws, blah blah blah. It can be, it can be, uh, uh, sorry, or any conservative forum. There are many forms of inventing of relying on the big other. Even the Marxists, for example, the idea of historical progress inscribed into history, this is the permanent metaphorics, not yet of Lenin, but of traditional Stalinist Marxism. We are just instruments of the historical will, or whatever, and so on and so on. So again, ethics of psychoanalysis imposes fidelity to your desire but a desire which is not sustained by any coherent figure of the big other which somehow serves as the ultimate reference it is true and revolution i think that's why i like to quote i always forget it is Robert no, I think it's Saint-Just, who says, no, revolution is not a process where you follow a higher necessity. You remember that wonderful metaphor, I quote often, where Saint-Just says, revolutionaries are like passengers or captains of a ship in the middle of white stormy sea without any compass, where you have to... Find your way, make risks, and so on and so on. That's how that's situation the position today. of the
1: ethics of desire right there. Is the yes. not yes. rely on a compass.
0: Yeah, yeah, Precisely. Yeah. Yeah. You to don't accept,
2: to accept that the compass itself is lacking. Right? That's the And can't
1: yeah. guarantee yeah. you
0: anything. It, yeah. it, uh, wait a minute. But now this doesn't mean any kind of uh Stupid, pure contingency. Like it doesn't matter. Blah blah. Like what blah, about a what about a
1: serial killer? A, like a serial killer who says, "This is my. This is what I desire. I don't care about the big other. I don't care about morality. This is what I desire. So I'm going to act on it." Like what? What do you say? Because I've seen people make this criticism of the psych, uh, the ethics of psychoanalysis. Is basically the the ethical hero then becomes. Worse of the serial killer that just doesn't care about social norms, doesn't care about the law, doesn't care about morality, simply acts on their desire, uh, doesn't compromise it in any way, shape, or form. Like, what would you say to somebody who makes the serial killer counterpoint to you on the ethics of desire?
0: I would say that if you analyze uh, first a serial killer that all serial serial killers that I've studied, and I did some, follow the logic of perversion. Perversion means you assume the position of the instrument of another's desire. This desire can even be the desire of the victim itself. You never, a serial killer, uh, uh, acts as an instrument, even if this is an instrument of peace, usually there are very few feminine uh, or trans, not that I know. Let's say a man, he experiences himself as obsessed by a kind of a deeper urge in himself. I unconditionally had to do it. This is not what I mean by not relying on each other, on the big other, because for me, The lack of big other means that, and here I am still a Hegelian Kantian, but in a way acceptable totally for Marx, you know, uh, radical ethics allows for no excuse. You cannot say what a serial killer would have been compelled to say sooner or later, which is that okay, I know I'm breaking all the moral rules, blah, blah, but I feel this urge in me. Sorry, no, you are radically responsible for what you are. This is, when this Freud said this, Freud, for Freud, unconscious is not, oh my God, there is something in me more than myself, I cannot do it. Lacan himself says already in the early 50s that, that uh, for a psychoanalysis, Psychoanalysts, even a psychotic, is free in the formal sense of responsible for what he is doing. Now you will say, but nonetheless, how can you then be in love, blah, blah? Ah, that's the beauty, the last key for me to this ethics of desire. Uh, For psychoanalysis, and here the link to what you mentioned, Kant, Schelling and so on, is obvious. The most radical freedom is the freedom that we experience as an inner necessity. Like, sorry, my old example, you, I'm sure, know it. Some of our listeners, I hope, don't know it. Uh, When you fall passionately in love, you never make the choice to fall in love. All of a sudden, you experience yourself as being in love. And this always comes after the fact. It's never, oh my God, now I want to fall in love the moment to do this, but nonetheless, although you experience this as a deeper necessity, your faith, you are fully responsible for it. Kant and Schelling made wonderfully this point, that the highest form of freedom is experienced as an inner necessity, and I think this even holds for political, ethical freedom, when Pathetic example, your political cause, country, but I don't like to mention country because I'm not a cheap patriot. But let's say country should be defended because it's brutally attacked. It's not that you make a choice, symmetric choice. You simply feel that, sorry for this cheap pathetics, you cannot look yourself into a mirror in the morning without getting engaged. And that's the truth. Dave, you
1: you want to say something? You
0: got me. Yeah,
2: so really quick here. That's per, I think that's a that's enough to. We'll be thinking about that one for the next year here, and then maybe we'll follow Don't up. Don't think you.
0: too much. Fuck you. I, Don't <laughs> think too much. No, but you know, we, we do want no, to get no, a, a couple no, other questions, Slavoy. Yeah. We've but got we've got a couple. But you know what? I almost, with my evil side, wanted to reply to you, and you will exclude me. Don't think about it. Really, do it or something. Just
2: do it. Just do it. Please. Yeah, it just, Please. we we should not read you we should just read Eckhart Tolle. we'll just be in the in the present in the now all of our problems will go away um okay. but the, I wanted to highlight for you that we got a camera working before we started recording this we were having trouble showing the in-person audience here in Boise but this tour is we're going through the United States. Every part of it will be uh, most most of the parts of this tour are going to be hybrid. And so I wanted to give, I wanted to point out the Boise audience to you. I don't know if you can see it there. Uh, everyone, go ahead and wave. Nance, you got to go. Actually, get I, I in the see
0: frame. Some of you, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I even see a guy from Austin called Lukac. I hope he's not a grandson of the Lukas. I see Castellucci, uh, Marilyn. Lawrence. In my dirty mind, I immediately combined this Marilyn Monroe and Jennifer Lawrence, or who is the famous one there? Sorry, <laughs> see. but yes, I see many of you. Uh, not all of you. Do you who is do you see Do you see Dave? this? Do
2: you who do you see this Dave? one? Do you see this one? Do you see the people? I just pinned it. Everyone, go ahead and wave. This is the people here in is Boise.
0: Davis, on, only the sign of underground uh, that's me.
1: Yeah,
0: well, that, that's oh, not it. That, it says Boise audience. Ah, so you are immediate, Dave, if I got it, you are immediate embodiment of the Big Other, then. Yeah. Yes, yes. 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 yes.
2: And I have this virtual background behind me, but it, I am in the same space as the Boise audience I here. Love
0: you, because my background, unfortunately, is the same one as as Marx and uh, the big signorelli's, we pretend to be intellectuals and want to introduce <laughs> through some books in the background. You know, we we, we call these in Liverpool. Really, uh, uh, that it's the wankers. only room in. Yes, uh, are they real books or are you doing this? What some of my professors that are new do, they uh, uh, buy pocket books. And then break just break the back so that the books look as if they are read, you know. Yes. Okay. So do.
2: now the question I, I want Please. the the I told you in the email beforehand that the. There's two questions that Mikey has that the internet is dying to hear, and yeah. so the first let of them
0: those, I've let them die. Okay, go. For <laughs> it. One of those,
2: one of those questions is not going to go up and be public on YouTube. It will not be. It's actually I, only I for the people care. who are I here. Don't care. He, he said okay. we can clip it. He doesn't care. Mikey, t- take it away. You get to ask both questions.
1: Okay, go for it. Slava, yeah, we got two questions here about other thinkers. So the first one, because none of us have ever heard you mention this guy. We want to know what who? do you do. You know who Nick Land is? No, you don't I'm know. So what funny. about what about this? C- like N I C K Land, like Land, Land of Glory, blah blah. Yeah. So Nick Land is a British philosopher, and at this point, he's one of the most famous philosophers on the internet. Like. I know you you're a meme in some way. Like there's, there's way, certain but philosophers yeah, yeah. that catch on with people online. You're one of them. Nick Land is another one. Nick Land's a British philosopher. Um, he's a Deleuze Guattarian, and he has the most I I don't even know how to describe it. his concept of capitalism, real quick, is this he takes deleuze and Guattari, he doesn't think he he doesn't factor in reterritorialization that much he thinks capitalism is basically synonymous with deterritorialization so he thinks capitalism is just going to decode and deterritorialize everything up until the point that it produces artificial intelligence he thinks that this is going to be a super intelligence and basically like a godlike entity and it's going to bring about the extinction of the human race because he's a Batayan, he thinks somehow our death is a good thing and so his theory of capitalism, he 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 basically in the 90s he was around leftists and he was he was at Warwick University mm-hmm. and he was embraced as a kind of leftist back then. Nowadays he'd say he never was, but he he's basically the most faithful champion of capitalism I've ever seen, even maybe more so than Ayn Rand or anything. But precisely because he thinks it's going to bring about the end of humanity, and he, he 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 basically got into amphetamines, he had an overdose or or he had a psychotic break. He moves to China, and now he's like the biggest proponent, spokesman for Shanghai, because he thinks actually Shanghai or the mega city of Shanghai is going to give rise to artificial intelligence, and mm-hmm. that's where the singularity is going to emerge. And so he's all for China. He's all for capitalism. He ends up becoming one of the founding figures in the neo-reaction movement with Mencius Mulbug, Curtis Yarvin. Um, So he now has this really strong following online with people on the neo-reactionary right. Yeah. And they all love him because they think he loves capitalism so much. And he does, but what they don't get is he loves it because it's he thinks it's going to produce a god entity that destroys all of us. He, and and so because he's so influential, though, um, and, and here's the thing. I mean, he hates Lacan. He hates Hegel. He's all about the losing Guatari. And so it's one of those things. Everybody's always been curious, though, about what you think of him because he ha- he's having such a, you know, he had such an impact on the neo-reaction movement. He's also considered the father of accelerationism. I know you're not a fan of accelerationism, but here's the thing. For him, acceleration means accelerating capital, turning itself into a god entity that's going to annihilate all of us. And so, with with all that being said,
0: what do you think of what you just heard? I think it may sound shocking. I don't want to lose too much time. But I think it's a way too optimistic theory. Really, you know, optimism can. For me, optimism is not simply everything will turn out good, well, and so on and so on. Optimism is precisely this stance of seeing a clear line of development, and then there is some point which appear to most of us catastrophic, but for him it's a desired goal, and so on and so on. For theoretical reasons, I think that. Uh, uh I think that uh, singularity in this precise sense I've elaborated this in my book Hegel in the Wired Brain, singularity in the sense of all of us single individuals becoming like collectively flowing in some kind of divine like mind, that it simply is immanently impossible. That again, here again, we have a wonderful example of what I was talking about before, the big other. Singularity, in the sense of godlike artificial intelligence, is the latest figure of the big other. And it's interesting that I forgot who, I quote it in one of my books, that some earths uh, some There are even some Hegelian thinkers of singularity who claim that, uh, you know, I count them among what I ironically call not yet Hegelians, those readers of Hegel who think Hegel was in some sense right, but he jumped to his conclusion too early. What Hegel aimed, total reconciliation, of subject and substance, of man and God, needs some more time. So even Marx was this, in a sense, at least in the reading of young Lukács, History and Class Consciousness, Marx's idea was that not in the spiritual domain, but in the social domain, subject and substance, which means work and capital, will be reconciled only through communist Revolution. So Hegel was too early. Then you have, of course, Fukuyama, who thought Hegel was too early. It's only with today's liberal democracy, global capital, that we are there. And then you had, again, artificial intelligence Hegelians, who said what Hegel prophesied as the as the reconciliation of subject and substance will happen only with singularity, where individual subjectivity will be drowned in and in this sense totally reconciled with substance. My first point here is that uh, already at the limited level of artificial intelligence that we know today, why do we presuppose? And I just one detour. I follow here even some intelligent. I don't agree with them, but they are not idiots. Uh, quantum physicists and quantum cosmologists like the German lady Sabine Forsenfelder, who uh, who claims that. Why do we always imagine artificial intelligence in this transhuman sense as some? consistent godlike totality. What if it will be a breathtaking total inconsistent mess? It will not be anything um, divine. The, but a more important point for me is this one, that... Uh, I would strictly prohibit here the use of the term God, because here I follow another person whom you mentioned in your letter to me, Heidegger. The thing to learn from Heidegger is that what we imagine as the divine immortal dimension is always rooted in our finitude, which I read in a more materialist way, in our concrete social constellation. There is no God in itself. What we experience as divine is a moment of our concrete historical texture, which means that the moment we become infinite in the sense of direct, directly participating in godlike entity, we not only lose our humanity, but we lose the divine dimension itself also. We step yeah, out the, the, into... A, the only thing I'll but, add is for him, I don't know if
1: divine... For, for Land, he thinks this deity, or entity as he calls it, is more Lovecraftian. It's a pure nightmare. We can't even begin to process it. It's not like a, 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 anything divine in, in the way that we would think of Christ or Allah or something as divine. It's it's a complete Lovecraftian nightmare that we can't begin to process.
0: I still think that he the way he describes it, it's too risky. It, uh, because if but then, he does think uh, it does, just
1: it's just going to refine its intelligence and just, it's almost like surplus intelligence. Just more and more, it's just going to get better and better, more consistent. Okay. It's going to refine the, its own I'm algorithms.
0: Here is what does he mean by intelligence? Because my basic point in my uh, 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 Hegel and the Wire Brain book is that if there is, uh, and I, Ask this question many, many, many uh, theorists with whom I'm in regular contact. You know, I have my strange connections with uh, quantum uh, physicists, with artificial intelligence theorists. And my big question, one of the big questions to them is... uh, is... uh, 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 is... uh, uh, precisely uh, this one. How that... uh, Obviously, his representation of artificial intelligence is Deleuzean.
1: It is, yeah, absolutely. It means He bases it, it on desiring production and machinic unconscious.
0: Yeah, which, but I think that, again, here my Freudian approach enters, unconscious is simply a meaningless term without subjectivity. Because for Freud, unconscious is not some basic flux without subject and so on. What Freud calls unconscious is unconscious formations, fantasies and so on are answers, replies to a certain deadlock. Deadlock which characterizes the rise of the subject. So all these descriptions... Infinite flux, no border, no longer human, blah blah. For me, it still remain fantasies. Fantasies okay. in the sense of avoiding a certain break. My counter answer would have been we don't know if this will happen. I don't think it will happen. We don't why doesn't he draw the conclusion that we are already there? Well, I'll tell you why, because he has
1: a teleological Concept of time. He thinks the future is more real than the present moment is, and that the future is actually. I mean, you're you're the you're one of the great thinkers of retro activity. But yeah, yeah. he takes it not as a quilting point. We change the past because we re-symbolize yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. There's something in him. He's taken like a literal physical retro causality. Like this thing exists out in the future, and it's time traveling or sending influential, uh, uh, by co- retro-causes back
0: in time to affect... I, I know, <laughs> but... I, my, uh, th- now we are coming, I like this very much, to even more fundamental, let's call them naively, I don't like this term, metaphysical questions. I remain mm-hmm. her, here a Hegelian materialist. Let me explain this crazy notion. You know, when Hegel says, I quoted this at least 10 times, when Hegel says how uh, 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 philosophy can only grasp a certain Lebensgeschalt figure of life, social order when it enters its decline. That and I think that I agree with Land. Yes, the representation of human being that is now in danger with artificial intelligence is something disintegrating today. But what he learned projects into the future as this uh, okay let's not use godlike but this infinite abyss it, maybe not it's entity with a capital E, the entity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that this is this is a strict again projection Fantasy formation on the gap in our situation here, which is already here.
1: Did you say that Deleuze I, and Guattari even do this at the end of Anti Oedipus with their their I- image of the new earth? Which it's like, oh, we, we have a form of desire that's not neurotic, it's not based on the signifier law, it's not caught yes, up with any exactly.
0: Of that. Exactly. I think that uh, I. Uh, this is why we don't have time to enter it. But this is why I think that uh, 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 Anti-Oedipus is arguably the worst book that they wrote. I much prefer different Interpretation, Logic of Sense, then maybe their last book is a little bit better uh, uh, introduction to philosophy or what. What about A Thousand Plateaus? Other, sorry? What do you think of A
1: Thousand Plateaus?
0: Where do you put that? A little bit better. It's already a little bit better than that lower point of of, of uh, anti-Oedipus. You know how I would read Deleuze and Guattari, especially Deleuze? In uh, anti-Oedipus, Oedipus is defined as the agent of uh, territorialization, retotalizing, whatever. But read his own logic of sense, where, towards the end, Oedipus is introduced precisely as an unlocatable outcast. So uh, The last is, for me, a wonderful example of something that holds for many great thinkers. Their big moment is not at the end. It can be at the beginning, in the middle, or where, for example, as I repeatedly tried to show with Shelling. So what I would say again, but let's not lose time with Nick Lent. Uh,
1: well, there's there's what, one more point I, I just want to ask please. you about. Because, okay, one more thing. So you and Land, even though I don't think you know you disagreed with each other on this particular event, yep. you both take different positions. And I just wanted to ask you about this real quick. Back in 2011, when the Chinese government banned all fiction it, depicting time travel, science fiction narratives, etc., um, you in Less Than Nothing talk about how you view it as what China was doing, the Chinese government was doing, is trying to ban... It's people of thinking of alternate futures, like it's a kind of ban on the future. Lan, though, as a supporter of China, he saw it as banning the past. It didn't it, what the Chinese government didn't want is people fetishizing their feudal past, thinking about the past, because China's actually the driving agent of the future, and so for him the ban is on the past. For you, the ban is on the future. And I'm just curious about what you would say, thinking about him saying the ban is on the past.
0: Uh, uh, okay, I'll put it like this. Uh, of course, the Chinese state bureaucracy, their top ideologists like Van Kuning, are not idiots. I respect them very much. I never dismiss uh, Xi. The present leader is some kind of a crazy old communist no he is based on a quite almost i would say accurate insight accurate uh, 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 accurate insight into uh, into modern capitalism his problem is how to retain American productivity capitalist productivity without the effect of social decay Unfortunately their solution is. But I don't mean this term in a bad sense, a neo fascist one. The typical neo fascist solution is if you put you want uh, uh, modernity without ideological modernization. You want the modern dynamic, you want conservative modernity. Their idea is modernity, but with Confucianism. I think it will not function. But, uh, what I would say, controlling the past and so on, is that uh, I see here no big uh, uh, contradiction. My only point is the Hegelian one. There is no future. Every image of future that we, I'm more of a pessimist even here, we don't know what will happen. I'm not, I have many scenarios. What I just don't believe is there will be this one large... uh, Let's drop the name God, but... Artificial intelligence, general flow, and so on and so on. If this happens, then we will not be able to use these terms which we project into it from today's experience. But my basic point would have been that uh, uh, would have been that the couple of de- territorialization terri- terri- and territorialization is not the ultimate point. That uh, again, we are maybe even rejoining the couple of desire and drive. Desire is in its nature, at least apparently, be de- territorializing. No, it moves always beyond. Yeah, drive is territorializing. You, yes, move in a closed loop, and so on and so on. And I think that that uh, again, in order for all this space to happen, you have to have a certain radical ontological. Gap, and that's why I'm looking also into this all this topic of quantum physics, void, and so on. Reality, in some sense, doesn't objectively exist. There is a multiplicity of inconsistencies, and so on. There is a mess, a gap, a mega. The, uh, you know, even in my new book, I would like if you don't put it on your web uh, or the web but keep it in your inner party circle, I would love to send you the manuscript of my new book, Not Freedom. Oh, that'd be great. I'd love that. It will appear in, in uh, uh, April called Christian Atheism. Okay. It's a provocative title. It's totally material. Don't be afraid. I didn't begin to <laughs> cover God or what. Well, my point is, I try to sharpen my debate with Buddhists, you know. My point is that, Buddhists have this opposition. Nirvana, this, it's not the same as what Land dreams about, but this kind of uh, eternal, it's not the proper term, it's not peace, but whatever. Flow or nothing. Right. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, my point is that the true choice is not between these two. My point is always a Hegelian one. Not can we arise from our finite world of desire to the void of nirvana? But the other way around, How? what went wrong with nirvana? That we fall into finite world. And for me, the gap, this is the origin. The origin is a gap. And uh, nirvana is always already a retroactive projection okay. out of this gap so uh, the same thing would be I don't have time to go into my ultimate answer to to Nick land it's that it's not we live today as humans and then we will blah 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 already as humans today we are not fully human that's why I remain faithful to the old structuralist notion of anti-humanism which means that in in the part of being human there is a constitutive madness and this madness which is not just human madness which echoes some fundamental ontological disorder depicted for example by quantum physics of reality itself that's the ultimate truth so uh, i would say that's, that that's, that's probably please. that's
2: i think that's a perfect that's I, I think gonna, we probably need question, right? we probably need to let you go here in a sec, but let Mikey, you've got the one that you wanted to ask kind of off the record. Just go for it really quick here.
1: Right, one last question. Yeah. Probably. So when Dave and yeah. I... I, I one last
0: question. Tell me the story of your life in two hours. <laughs> <You're> <laughs> right, <yeah. laughs> you know, okay. isn't this so liberating politically correct? The only way for me to be friendly with somebody is to presuppose that in some sense they are evil, you know? You project evil. This is for me the only forum of true trust and friendliness. It's not. Oh, I know you are good. No, sorry, nobody is good. You know, right. sorry. Go yeah. on. Okay.
1: So when Dave and I met you the first time, we were at the 2018 International GJet Conference in Athens, Georgia. Athens, Georgia. Oh my God! I have sorry that you didn't approach me, but no, we did. We did.
0: We did memories of that one.
1: But, uh, okay. So here's the thing though. When I, no, I, I, the thing I mentioned to you, um, was I had plans. Like I wanted to get what you thought about Baudrillard. And so I told you that I had an idea for a book on you and Baudrillard. Well, the last five years have been me doing constant research and the book's going to be out next year. I, it's, it, it's happening next year, but what I just wanted to, to, kind of refresh my memory real quick didn't you say to me that baudrillard actually like he he had read sublime object and sent word to you that he appreciated your work is, is that do i remember that correctly that, that yeah, you but this is, uh, what
0: they what they call in detective novels second hand circumstantial evi- evidence okay somebody told me this and it wasn't even that he read sublime object the one who read Sublime Object and didn't like it was Lyotard. Oh, okay. But uh, Borderyard, it was just at the end, before he died, with these new confusions and contradictions, ecological crisis, and so on. There, I got a message immediately before his death, I think even from his wife, that he uh, that he liked me and so on. And see, but I, I, you know, there is, nonetheless, maybe a difference between him and me. Okay. In a very naive way, and you may feel it already, what I was telling now, recently. I think we have to step out of this deconstructive mode. It's very naive what I will say now. Oh, philosophy means reading readings of how other people read books, and then, you know, in this sense, deconstructing. I think we should begin to risk big ontological projects. How to do this without regressing to some traditional metaphysics? That's the big problem I'm struggling in my last work. So uh, Baudrillard is for me here a little bit too uh, deconstructionist still. And that's what I like about Deleuze. The list is, to the end, not afraid to simply posit, as in logic of the sense, strong ontological thesis, propositions. I think this is what we should do today.
1: You know, and even in the the last books Baudrillard wrote, though, like uh, Lucidity Pack, he seemed to return to metaphysics a little bit, where he's kind of taking this distinction between sign and symbol or you know, yeah. uh, the code and um, uh, symbolic exchange and basically seeing them as almost like metaphysical tendencies and so I almost see it like a return later on in him where he, he, he warms up to it a bit
0: I have nothing, I must now make a confession, I bluff enough, I don't want to bluff too much that uh, I I there is a lot of Lyotard that I simply didn't read, so I'm not qualified to make statements
1: here but do like do you have a, a like a baudrillard work that you really appre- did you like simulacra and simulation or the did mirror you, production you, see with the mirror uh, production no, I I, okay i'm sorry please finish no
0: I i'm was just saying up. like
1: at one point like with baudrillard in the mirror of production i feel like he's really tapped in to a lot of the stuff that you're always trying to explain to marxists like in your your book on the communist manifesto which yeah, yeah. is both you and baudrillard seem to have realized that just uh, like copying and pasting old marxist categories that marx used in his time onto our situation don't work you can't just take proletariat as marx understood it and it just perfectly makes sense of the working class now you can't just take wages the way marx understood them yes. and say oh yes that's how wages work now or the strike that's how strikes work now both you and baudrillard seemed to, to convey a skepticism saying these concepts just don't they don't work exactly the same way that they did
0: no, for but My my agreement, that one I did read, the mirror of production, and my agreement with Baudrillard is even deeper here, in That's... the sense that if I remember correctly, <laughs> Baudrillard's point is that Marx, but not only Marx, it's not so much Hegel, it's more maybe uh Fichte and some others, established this logic of we live in an imaginary world of mirrors, exchange, and so on, and the real productive ground is then some process of production. I think, but I first would be here a little bit more merciful towards Marx. This is a naive reading of Marx, And there are big debates in Marxism about this. Do you know who made this term critical of Marxism? Do do you read Kojin Karatani? Yeah. yeah. I I forgot the title of his book, No Longer the Last One, when he tries to supplement, in very Baudrillardian view, I think, the notion of modes of production with the notion of modes of exchange. Okay. So that again what orthodox productivist Marxists would dismiss as mirror is the thing itself. And I think that even if we reread Marx in this way, you see that things are not as simple as that. For me, the worst text of Marx is that introduction to the or forward to the critique of political economy, where he has this evolutionary stupidities, you know. Production develops, and then, when it develops up to a certain degree, it no longer fits the old mode of production, and so on. No, Marx, in his own work, doesn't follow this. For example, in Capital, he distinguishes between... Formal subsumption under capital, and then full subsumption. He said that with early artisans, weavers, and so on, the the form material of production, weaving machine, remained the same. They were privately owned. Capitalist was just the one who immediately bought the products, and uh, that first it's a formal subsum- subsumption at the level of the logic of exchange. Then. The, the the machines the concrete material mode of production itself changes. so it gets uh, it gets uh, much more concrete here i at this level i i agree with Baudrillard. also i admire very much it really affected me uh was it on i'm sorry old Sinal guy am i confusing him uh, with somebody else didn't he? Visit, it was Korea, south, not north, I think. And then portraying Korea as this kind of a land of the future where people are at the same time. I'm not sure talking. if that's him or not, honestly. Yeah, but it, it reminds me of his, maybe too pathetic, but nonetheless wonderful, it's a fantasy, but a nice fantasy description of landing in LA, Los Angeles, and landing in hell and all that. <laughs> These are fantasies, but I think they are, in some sense, fantasies immanent to reality itself. Yeah,
1: at, like Because you always emphasize that, like with an ideology, uh, ideological formation, there's always an unconscious fantasy um, holding it together. And so would you say that maybe Who when Bojnar doing his travel logs, like he was doing yeah. America going across, he's actually tapped into the phantasmatic structure of America, yeah. and that's what he's describing.
0: Yes, and that's uh, very important, because now comes my final point. I think that uh, he was able to do it. Precisely, he was not himself an American. I, I was never this fake historicist in the sense of you have to be there to really see it how it is. No, I believe that we can understand Shakespeare today much better than people in Shakespeare's time and so on and so on, and that, again, to understand what is happening in America, we it's better not to be too American. Where are you in Chicago? Where are you?
1: I live right in a, in a small suburb, Raytown, Missouri, but I'm right outside of Kansas City, Missouri.
0: Ah, oh, you are you are there, my God! Yeah, no. yeah, Midwest. Uh, uh, because no, no, uh, uh, because uh, do you know? Was it? No, it wasn't Kansas City, which is the big gate to the West City. That's great... St. Louis. Sorry? St. Do St. you Louis. know about the strangest phenomenon in American philosophy, the so-called St. Louis Hegelians? No. Some German high school teachers who around 1850 established the first Hegelian school there. It was pretty influential. Even the great pragmatist Charles Sanders Peirce, mm-hmm from these Hegelian forces, but their idea was this one. Hegel came to his conclusion too quickly. It's not the West that in the 20th century or already late 19th century, the spirit moved from Western Europe to America. And then even then, they moved further. First, it was East Coast. Now it's moving to... St. Louis. And they thought, this is it. And mm-hmm. I like this fantasy. Of they were proven immediately empirically wrong because Chicago won over yeah. St. Louis soon. But then, you know, you had their followers who claimed, no, they didn't go far enough. It's West Coast. We had this dream, LA, Seattle, that's it. And now you have, I love this, some, not only... Japanese guys, but even Chinese guys who claim the only way to be truly Hegelian, yeah? maybe Nick Land would agree with this, is China. You know, for Hegel, China, Africa is before. China is the beginning of history. Well, it should also end there. It comes full circle around. You know, so I mean, these are things. Sorry. Oh, I'm so. Uh, I know
2: it's getting late for you and we got to, we were about to let the other two speakers here go up, but right before we do that, um, I had my final question as well. And I thought, you know, since you're, I'm just going to ask it because I think the whole internet's dying to know uh, about your relation to compact because you are on the board of editors or, or uh, you can explain that in a second, but uh, I just wanted to say that we've caught a lot, we've caught a lot of heat uh, from people who don't know us and, don't read us, but they, they see that we're affiliated with you. They see that, uh, we're affiliated or that Nina power is in the volume. Um, they see that, uh, you two are affiliated with, uh, uh, compact. And so there's like this, this, uh, criticism that we've received that this is uh, a red Brown operation, that this is a reactionary operation, that this is, uh, blah, 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 you know, the thing. Um, and so I kind of just wanted to give you a moment to, uh, as we close out, say why it is that that project over there at Compact Magazine, uh, why it matters to you, what value is it that you see in that?
0: Can I uh, give you a surprising, brutal answer? I yes. don't regularly yeah, you can. follow. Yeah, I don't regularly follow Compact. Just. Uh, I am not even sure where would they really stand. Are they some kind of anti-woke left? Are they more in the middle, blah, blah? What matters to me is that, and that's the desperate situation we are in today, that, for example, did I publish with them that text, uh, 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 some uh, radioactive reflections and so on? No, I published that one with philosophical. It doesn't matter. There are many texts where the only two options for me to publish are Compact, or my friend Michael Marder, Philosophical Stallone. The censorship is so strong. For example, my last text, it's now published in that project, Syndicate website with a strange title, National Disorb, I don't know what. It's critical, but very respectfully not anti-Semitic, the final hero is but it's critical of some extreme phenomena on, in Israel today. Absolutely, it was impossible to publish it anywhere, in Germany, in the United States, and so on. Are people aware how strict the censorship is in these days? So uh, I don't think they are. Not, I don't think they are. I, it's not that I looked around and said, okay, let's close compact. They invited me. I sent them a text, which nobody, no one else wanted. They said, yes, that's it for me. And it's a very tragic situation, you know. Uh, it's from all sides, from, of course, right-wing side, but also from the woke leftist side and so on. The censorship is getting so incredible that, and with this I will finish immediately, that, do you know that some people asked me, they were stupid enough, I warned them, I will not name them, for a letter of recommendation, I did it, but I warned them, I may appear well known, but this may cause you trouble. And afterwards they told me, you were right, we didn't get the job, not in spite of your recommendation, but because of it. We all (laughs) thought they got their spice within that committee and they learned that precisely somebody said, no, 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 let's not give the job to this guy. He has a letter of support from Slavoj Zizek that's bad. So, you know, don't underestimate in what a desperate situation I am. In the sense of how difficult this is to reach the public.
2: And in that sense, uh, then uh, I see why you uh, jumped at the opportunity to submit something to us because depending Absolutely. on how that goes,
0: maybe and we you can know publish why something. I to like you, just one point that you will like: theory underground. You know, I read this with you know the famous quote from from uh, Virgil: and Aida acheronta movebo, move the underground." Insofar as the under, underground is the all the unconscious fantasies, things that we know, but we don't know that we know it. That's the crucial thing to do today. We cannot do direct revolution, but the only way to lay the foundation for it is to do what you are doing to move the underground. It's a theoretically correct title.
2: Thank you, Slavoj. It's been a, it's been a complete honor to
0: have you. And uh... don't, don't screw me with this type of bullshit, you know. You should say something. Hey, fuck off, Boy. Fuck off,
2: Slavoy. We don't give no. a shit. It doesn't matter. We don't fucking no, care. It, you should say
0: it wasn't totally bad, but you should put a lot of work into it to make it somewhat better. That's the only thing that I accept. Okay. Hey, have you've got, a, nice you've got a better talk in you. <laughs> yeah, okay. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. I appreciate it. Thanks, Boy. Bye-bye. Thank take you, care. take care. Yeah, yeah, take care of of my feet, yeah.
2: <laughs> I'm gonna do a quick little point of order here for you folks, because I understand a lot of people probably are ready to go eat lunch. For the people who are actually here in Boise, just so you know, at any point, stand up, go over get some refreshments. There are some, there's also like water and other things like down the hall. Holly's got sparkling water. Um, I but let's see. So what we want to do really quick is just let you all know what the agenda is. So, uh, it, mountain time it's eleven forty-five. Mikey, that means it's twelve forty-five where you're at. It was okay. getting pretty late for Zizek. so it's awesome that he stayed as long as he did. He actually stayed longer than we had agreed, which is, it was okay. It was okay. <laughs> it was okay. Um, the order of operations here, though, the theory underground tour crew is going to say some things and then the uh the two pr- uh, local presenters here in boise elton lk of the working class intelligentsia as well as the dead parrots philosophical society as well as um hold on let me change this back to speaker view what's going on here you people all fuck hey, me hey. In. oh everyone turn their cameras off They just wanted to be seen with Zizek. They don't care about this. They're like, fuck it. We're out. Well, why, why is it stuck on, why is it stuck on Mikey when he turned his camera off? Mikey. Okay. Fuck it. Whatever. I think it'll pick it up from the zoom side on the recording. So it should be fine. But, uh, what am I saying? well, Basically, uh, the the tour crew is going to say a few words. um, And then, so Nance is going to introduce Anne and myself uh, to talk about the two books. And then Elton LK, where Class Intelligentsia is going to give his presentation on how Mark Fisher's The Vampire Castle is actually the PMC, but then he has a critique of how that term gets used. And then uh, we'll end out here on Brian Weeks and his submission to Underground Theory. So um, I guess as uh, some... Introductory remark for uh as by way of introduction for Nance here, I'll just say that uh nobody has been as supportive of what's going on at Theory Underground in terms of time energy. That is to say that Nance has put in the most to actually show up and be there for every one of the courses. And he's given 110%. And so uh the fact that he wanted to go on the tour with myself and Ann. It's like, it's a really exciting thing. So everybody, we're, we're coming to a, a city near you. Um, and uh, Marilyn, go ahead and text me in a second here. I'll step away and look at the phone, but everybody put your hands together for Nance.
1: What's
4: happening everybody, what's happening internet? Um, Thank you all for coming. Um this is kind of weird. It's kind of it's kind of thrown together. It kind of feels hectic, a little madcap. Um a little manic. And it is all those things, but it's also um, much more than those things. Um Theory Underground is very special to me. Um I've had times in my life really low. Um and I've had substance abuse issues and shit. And uh, I got sober a fucking decade ago or whatever. Um, but sobriety isn't just abstinence from substances, it's it's filling in the void that you were just trying to cover over. Um, and uh I try to do that with philosophy, and uh it's somewhat effective, but uh something was always missing so the the combination of resolve um and, and energy and dedication um and and obsessive focus um and the willingness to to um i don't know put the put the team on on your back dave is remarkable and and i i see a lot of really cool shit um, with his ability to just say, yeah, fuck it, I'll do it. It needs to get done. Um, and now I'm lost. I don't know what I'm talking about, but uh, yeah, Theory Underground fills in that void that I was trying to cover up and uh, and it was really cool and I'm down for the cause. Uh, so we're going on this tour and and these events are going to be interesting. They're going to be hybrid events. They're going to be internet facing. They're going to be having a live audience, a lot of this stuff is new. A lot of this stuff resembles things that have been done for a long time, but things that have been captured, things that are just part of the spectacle, things that that just happen so that they can continue to happen. Um, and th- th- this is something new. So we're going to fuck up. We're going to fuck up publicly. We're going to fuck up big. But we're also um, already succeeding just by virtue of being here doing this and be willing to go out on a limb um, and put the team on your back. So I'm really excited to be going through um, all these cities and hopefully meeting up with people. I know some of the people here. I know some of the people here on the internet. Um, I'm looking forward to spending time with more people doing really cool shit, going to Broadway shows, um, maybe causing a scene at platypus in Chicago um going to d c, hanging out with Mikey, um going to philly, um really looking, really looking forward to to doing all the things we're gonna do. And hopefully this hasn't been too abrasive for the people here, for the people here on the internet. Um, thank you all for coming. Thank you all for giving us your attention. Um, Anne is gonna come up and talk about underground theory. The volume that is a collection of some very big names, some very small names um, and some actually unknown people. And they all have something to say and it is worth reading. Um, And that's dope. Dave's going to come up after that and talk about the Time Energy book. That is really good. And uh, I'm very excited to have all that shit shared with the world. Um, Anne's going to talk now.
5: All right. Hello, Internet friends, Mikey, Nick, Andrew, all of you who I don't know yet. Hello, Boise friends. Um, first of all, thank you all for being here and thank you all for the support. Normally, you know, when you have a book, like a team of people who have been trained to edit and put together a book who know how to use the the programming like word to make it come together, they all do it together and it takes them like two or three years. And Dave said, Slavoj Zizek gave us a manuscript. We're going to put out a big book with a bunch of people in it. Let's get it out this summer, like in April. I'm like, oh, okay. And we we did it. We did it a little bit later than we meant to, but we did it. And so thank you all. The support has just been, been great. Um, so yes, Underground Theory. This is the draft version. There's typos on the cover. Don't worry about it. You know, we put a lot of work into the book that is now available on Amazon, but you should actually buy it on theory-underground.com slash underground theory book? Something like that. You should buy it on the website because it's cheaper. It's at a discount.
2: Theory-underground.com forward slash store.
5: Forward slash store to buy the books. Um, Underground Theory has uh, 32 authors or contributors to the volume, like Nan said, including some big names like Slavoj Žižek, Todd McGowan, and even, you know, a never-before-seen piece by Marshall McLuhan uh, donated or gifted to us by the estate of Marshall McLuhan. Um, Their works range from very academic and very rigorous and very technical to more poetic and narrative. And so, you know, reading this anthology, I don't want to say it's going to be like reading something you've never read before. but. Most of the time, people aren't just putting out books with authors like from Gijek to people from the middle of like Boise, Idaho, and so I think this book is this anthology is really special in the diversity that it offers. You know, in the the very rigorous writing to the humor and the narrative all throughout it, and so I'm really excited for people to get their hands on it and to read this uh, work. Um, you'll see, not in the dedication page of this. Uh, drafts that I have in my hands, but in the dedication of the book, it is uh, to workers with earbuds or something along those lines. Because at the end of the day, this book is for real working people who want to cultivate their minds, who care about education and thought and knowledge for its own sake. And I'm really proud of every single piece that is in this book. And I kind of just wanted to, in my time up here, give a little teaser to some of the works that are in here. Let everyone know what kind of some of the sections are. Um, It'll be brief because obviously you can read it for yourself, but get excited because as soon as this thing arrives, like I want to read it again just for pleasure, not just for editing. We've got the first section, Underground Theory and Alternative Education, a lot of pieces that highlight on the idea of the university, which was actually the very first course that was taught at Theory Underground, co-taught by Brian, Dave, and me. I think it's really special that that we have so many pieces talking about the idea of the university, because the idea of the university, like I said, was that first course at Theory Underground, and it really highlights the values of Theory Underground and what we're trying to do, not being a university, but still trying to uphold those ideas of the university, being a community of truth seekers, the pursuit of knowledge and education for its own sake, and having academic freedom and so This book really, really captures that idea of the university. It lives on in every piece in this book. And so you'll see pieces about that in the alternative education and underground theory section. We have a section on critical media theory with a really unique, uh, very, you know, underground theory to its core contribution from Samuel Loncar up on the East Coast. That's where the Marshall McLuhan piece is. We have ideology critiques, so a lot of some Lacanian psychoanalysis, um, reflections and analysis. Uh, we've got a whole piece in there about uh, the concept of jump humping. If you don't know what that is, oh boy, you're in for a treat. Um, more, you know, underground theory about the development of an idea of future trauma by Sean Middlestad. I believe he's here in the group with us, as well as a piece uh, kindly gifted to us by Lenka Zupancik. Next we've got the left and its critique featuring a blurb or a piece from Norman Finkelstein's latest book, I'll burn that bridge when I get to it. Slavoj Žižek's piece in there, Nina Power and Daniel Tut somewhat in dialogue with each other with two very differing opinions, but we wanted to highlight those and say, "Hey, this is a space for differing opinions that not every author and contributor is going to agree with one another and they can be in dialogue with each other and that should exist." in the academic spheres and in the underground. We've got Elton's piece, Vampire Castle is PMC, which he's going to present on a little bit later today. Um, A piece about how the lock, the 2020 lockdown, how it it helped capitalism, and then Dave's Laughter Than Now. And finally, um, historical interpretation and the history of philosophy. Um, Some really unique pieces in there. Art and gentrification in London in the early 2000s and uh, Limiting Us to Freedom by Todd McGowan, all excellent pieces. Each piece is unique. And like Nan said, each piece is well worth reading and engaging with and taking seriously. Um, I'm so proud of Dave for organizing this. I'm so proud of Nance and Elton and Brian for contributing to this book and being able to say, hey, I'm published in a book with like big names, but also just writing like very quality pieces that really embody the the ethic and the value of Theory Underground. And so put a lot of work into this, this baby, our first baby outside of Ryan Gosling, I suppose, our little kitten who's been scampering around on the floor. Um, thank you all for the support. We're so excited for you to read it. And Dave is now going to tell us a little bit about Time Energy.
1: Thank you, Anne, for all the work you did.
2: Yeah. If you didn't hear that, Ann, Mikey just said, thank you for all the work that you put into this. Also, thank you to Marilyn. Oh my gosh. Thank you, thank so you to Mikey and Nance. Um, the, the, all of you have done so much to read over that volume. Um, time energy. Actually, I mean, Ann was even surprised. She forgot. Like, Apparently I never communicate like some of the most important things that are actually going on in my head when I'm organizing. It's a, it's a big flaw. But basically, yeah, a lot of people did not realize that time energy was coming out at the same time as underground theory. And that's because in my mind, it wasn't going to, it was going to come out like two months ago, but I kept pushing it off because I was too focused on the tour, too focused on the app, too focused on our wedding, too focused on the honeymoon, too focused on all of these other things that were going on. And then I was like, I kept just kind of kicking the ball off. And then I was like, no, I can't let this fucking book sit there any longer because the whole point of it is just to get it out there. So the people who are like, well, what's time energy? What, why do you all keep saying it that that way? Like, what is this neologism? Are you just saying time and energy and mashing it together? And it is it is not that simple. It is a little bit more technical, but the it is meant also to be intuitive, to actually – you kind of do get it you, in the sense that you don't have time. And when you do have time, you don't have energy. If you do have energy, the time that you have is garbage time itself because it's not really repeatable, reliable, large windows or blocks of time. And so this is basically an existential understanding of labor power, right? But also, it's not just of labor power. For Marx, it's just labor power all the way down, like turtles all the way down. It's just labor power all the way down. The thing is, is I think it's useful to make a distinction uh, between labor power and time energy because time energy is the precondition for what becomes labor power as a commodity within capitalism. But that, that can also become uh, just expropriated labor power, not commodified, for a feudal lord, if you're a serf, or for a slave. Um, so it doesn't, you know, c- civilizations throughout history have seen the general populace or some other that is enslaved as nothing more than a reservoir of labor power. But that is the reduction of time energy to labor power. And so for the last 2,500 years, the there's always been some elite that gets relative time energy and everybody else, their labor power, all of their time energy is reduced to labor power. Right. Um, and so the, the, the simple definition of it is just large energy infused repeatable blocks of time throughout the week. Um, and I focus on the week because obviously it would also be repeatable throughout the year, throughout the decades. But the point is, is that, uh, To learn the violin, you kind of have to actually go at it for hours on end until you're kind of over it or or your fingers hurt too much. And then you have to give yourself a break, but you have to come back to it soon enough that you're actually building on what you already learned so that you are embodying the practices. It's no different for philosophy and theory. And so people say, well, why? why don't people read more books? So it's just the phone's fault. No, the phones are a great way of using garbage time when you don't actually have Cool, calm, and collected energy. When all you have is restless energy, and so the thing that we all lack is time energy. And with time energy, we are able to study philosophy. We are able to write our thoughts out. We're able to develop our human capacities, our personhood. And I think that that matters because at the end of the day, I think yeah, uh, Nick Land is fascinating. But um, I'm on the side of humans versus capital, and I do think that. That's not necessarily something where it's like, Oh, the solution is going to come through revolution or reform. Oh, the solution is going to come from some kind of like collective solidarity moment. Um, Maybe I'm open to that. I'm, I'm, I am genuinely open to that. I like that idea a lot, but at the, at, at the base level though, I don't care what the solutions are. If the solutions do not free up our time energy, they're not real solutions right? UBI without time energy, that just means more working, right? We have to restructure society in such a way as to free up time energy for everybody, not just the children of Bloomberg or Bezos, right? They get it. They get that relative time energy. And of course, a lot of rich kids don't get it. A lot of, a lot of, uh, rich kids, middle-class kids, um, They don't actually get it because their parents have to hustle so hard, they don't actually get to have relationships. And so not only is time energy the precondition to what becomes labor power, it's also the precondition to cooperation with other people over an extended period of time. It's also the precondition for discovering your talents and developing them. And so it's meant to be an intuitive way of talking about a critique of capital, but I also kind of avoid putting up a lot of partisan red flags throughout this book. I'm trying to develop a way of talking here that is speaking to people who get it, but also speaking to people who are put off by politics in the United States and who associate a lot of the techno mumbo jumbo of post-Marxist, you know, leftoids. Uh, they associate that all as it's just a bunch of like, oh, whatever. That's too political. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to just kind of bracket that out. And we're just going to put front and center. The one thing that everybody is very aware of, which is that every time they want to do something, every time they want to be there for something, to be able to show up and follow through on something that they promised they would do for themselves or something that they promised they would do for another, right? Because of friendship, a relationship, a marriage, being a parent, all of these things require showing up and following through. And it requires a sort of sustained effort. But the precondition for that happens to be the exact same resource that is the precondition for labor power. And so Time Energy has a subtitle. This uh, is a draft. This this draft does not have the subtitle. The, the new version of the book looks a lot better. And the subtitle is Why You Have No Time or Energy. Because I wanted the book to when people read time energy and they go, what is that? And then they go, Oh, it's why I don't have time or energy. Oh, that's interesting. I should probably look at that. And so that's what that's about. Um, And uh, it's kind of my baby and I love it very much, but also time energy is not my, it's not my concept. The concept is a neologism, but it's meant to signify something that is real, something that is yours as well. And it's ours collectively in a shared sense that is, as a lack because it's the thing that none of us have, regardless of class, regardless of gender, regardless of race. It's the one thing we all share, and that is a constituent lack. And the lack is caused by a regime that sees us as nothing more than something that can be turned into profit. That is our time and energy. So thank you, everybody. Um, And now uh, I I
1: hope I'm saying congratulations to you publicly on getting this book done. People have no idea the amount of time and energy it's taken you to refine this, to work on this book. To, and we know that you've got other books on this topic planned. Okay, but still, you finished one, you've got your first book, truly devoted to time and energy. It's a major accomplishment, and I'm proud of you, and you deserve a huge congrats for accomplishing this.
6: And I just say, I, 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 I haven't read the book yet, but just the very concept and what you put out there, it sounds absolutely fantastic. And I'm, I'm saying this because if you look at what's put out today in terms of, you know, online, everywhere, we have all these solutions for optimization of the self. The idea that, you know, even at the level of spirituality, if you wish, it's all about Optimization so how you can become a better person is about how um optimized you can be. Um and so the the whole field of self-help is saturated with that. What you've done is you've pierced something there, you've gone in and, and made a signifier that will appeal to people who know that there is a lack. There's something wrong here, but the solution you're giving isn't about, you know, some neoliberal individual. Uh, process by you become a better person it's a collective one it's directly political and that for me is the genius in what you've put you you just pushed there so yeah congratulations
2: thank you thank you i'm gonna i'm gonna send you the book and then you can write out a blurb for me or maybe i'll just quote you saying what you just said (laughs) um but okay, that's enough about me. I'll be talking about this all of tour. There'll be lots of stuff on my channel. There's a time energy seminar beginning January, uh, the beginning of January at theory underground. It's a course I'll be teaching. Uh, we'll be going through the entire history of philosophy, drawing on everybody from Aristotle through Descartes into the sort of postmodern continental kind of people, but no, we'll, we're, it'll be spanning everything, all of our favorite thinkers. And as well as a bunch of obscure ones that talk about this stuff in various ways, um, and so I hope that people uh, who are interested in this will sign up for it. It's not going to be too time demanding. It will only be once a month uh, that the seminar takes place. Um, but with that, I want to turn it over here to someone. Um, are we setting up the other microphones for them? Yeah. Is that better? Yeah. Well.
6: yeah. All right. So yeah, I, I have to go now, but honestly, thank you very much and stuff. So it's... Uh, Glad uh, to see absolutely. you, here, Mark. Hey,
2: you. hey, Mark. It was yeah, it's great to have you and uh, the rest of this will be in full available online, hopefully tomorrow. I I can't make promises that I can't keep, but I'm trying to get it up tomorrow. So, Um, But with that, we are going to give it over here to Elton LK of the Working Class Intelligence. He is somebody who's very important to me. He is a big time underground theorist. He's been educating people in theory and philosophy now for a very long time through the Dead Parrots Philosophical Society, but also the two podcasts that he does related to class and so everyone put your hands together here for elton oh hold on we're switching microphones here so you can just do it right here you you already set it up all down there H5. h5 sorry elton uh it's it's not showing up yet it's not showing up yet we're switching microphones everybody it's uh Somebody came here yesterday while we were setting up all of this technical stuff, and was like, "Oh yeah, so it's like a podcast." And we're like, it
0: "Should be up now." That'd
2: be so much easier if it was. No, no, no. You got it. No, it's it's not. It's not selected yet. Yeah, the, audio the whole thing is, you got to go to audio interface. You got to do this. You got to do that. But come over here, Elton. Come over here. All right. So this is Elton, everybody. And so I think. Um, You can say some kind of preamble things before uh, we're actually set up with the real microphone to
7: go. Okay, sounds good. Here, let me give you this. I'll
6: go around behind you. Okay,
7: Okay. so preamble stuff. This is exciting. And um, like I think it was Anne was saying, um, Theory Underground, I think is um, great. It's a dialogue between you know, different positions. Like uh, I think Zijek was saying as well. It's nice when people don't agree with you. Um, obviously, uh, that's within within reason. But um, I'm I'm a bit of a funny person. I think to be in this place because uh, you know, admittedly, I'm a white collar worker, but I have a the boldness to have a podcast called the Working Class Intelligentsia. Um I think Dave mentioned that. Um, you know working class isn't an identity politics so it's not about being um you know some stereotype of of what that identity is uh okay are we good yeah yeah okay so um you know for starters i am really interested in the pmc um partially because um i am well, I'll get to that in a moment. Okay, so PMC tends to just be a slur against um, certain kinds of people. Uh, we're sick and tired of them. They should just shut up, that kind of stuff. Um, but the problem is is that uh, we need to actually understand what this term means and we're not going to be able to make the kinds of change that we want to see in the world until we have a better handle on this term. Um, I think a lot of the people who dismiss the term PMC dismiss it because, um, because of the people who use the term, use it so dismissively. And so then it's basically like, um, it's not given the, academic rigor that it really deserves that I think um, John and Barbara Ehrenreich gave to it in their uh, essays from 1977, which I'll discuss more in a moment. So I wrote an essay, um, Vampire Castle is PMC, um, specifically Mark Fisher was uh writing uh i think it was 2013 so like 10 years ago and he was writing about the the vampire castle which i'll I'll talk about eventually but um the important point is that he um was referring to the vampire castle as petty bourgeois and he um you know says a lot of critical things about the vampire castle uh much of which i agree with um I think that it was a mistake for him to call the vampire castle petty bourgeois, because it wasn't, it was PMC. Um, What uh, I chose to write this essay because um, not, not because I'm attacking or criticizing Mark Fisher. And in fact, Mikey asked me um, at uh, a couple days ago, you know, essentially, um, what I think of Mark Fisher and, and I actually think that Mark Fisher would just agree with me. I could be wrong, but if, if he were here today and, and, and could respond, I think he would just say, yeah, yeah, that's what I meant. Okay. Moving on. And, um, I even actually went into this writing it with that intention, but recognizing that, um, you know, there's a lot of confusion, especially among Marxists around this, as well as, um, as i was writing and have had conversations and been paying more attention i recognize that there is so much defensiveness around this term pmc that people just don't even want to engage with it and and i don't know if it's like you know marx said uh you know intellectuals are petty bourgeoisie so we don't need to talk about it um and if that's what's going on, I just disagree with them. And um, I don't know what, where they're coming from, but uh, all of that to say, that's kind of where I came from with writing um, this essay. All right. So why this is important, as I was saying, I don't think we can get anything done until we understand what, what the PMC is and and incorporate that into our uh, class analysis of, of, the material conditions, Um, the left, especially since the 60s, has been dominated by the PMC, not the working class. And, um, you know, the Ehrenreichs recognized in their essays in 77 that the left would remain marginal as long as uh, that was the case, because the PMC really is, um, allow me to explain PMC real quick um, you know, the professionals and the managers. Okay, moving on. So, um, the, uh, the professionals and the managers within society are really, you know, let's say it's, uh, 30% of the population now, but it's still not a vast majority. And basically we're not going to have real change, um, until the vast majority are on our, on our side. Um, So, yeah, so I think even the the socialist movement is predominantly PMC today, and um, it must earn the trust of the working class before anything is going to change. Okay, so the PMC. the Ehrenreichs came up with the concept of the PMC. Actually, let me correct, they didn't come up with the concept of the PMC. It was ever, it was very prevalent um, in intell- intellectual circo- circles. James Burnham uh in the 40s recognized that he didn't come up with the idea. Um, and that, you know, kind of like everybody would recognize like, wait a minute, Marx was talking, you know. Uh, 75 years ago about uh, how um, the the bourgeoisie and the proletariats, which is to say the capitalists and the workers were the primary conflict in society. And there's these small business owners, petty bourgeois, who will um, eventually just go away and, and basically become workers. And so that you won't have, um, you know, you won't have a middle class you'll just have you know these impoverished workers and these capitalists until the workers overthrow uh capitalism and um obviously that didn't happen um the 20th century proved kind of the opposite where the middle class just exploded and um it you know it was a real debate among marxists and non-marxists like um what's going on you know with uh monopoly capitalism uh radically changing the um demographics of of at least you know western society so let's talk about class for a moment like what is class um and why is it important so class is a concept that um, sociologists and all different kinds of people use in order to understand what's going on in society, different people groups that are interacting with each other. Um, They, you know, evolved over time to um, become, you know, what what we recognize and we, you know, we think of like blue collar as being a class and the middle class as being a class and then obviously there's the aristocracy and the big capitalists um but for marx class was fundamentally about power and who has um control of of essentially um the economic system and the you know the material that we need in order to survive um and um he didn't base it on some cultural aspects. So um, for Marx, it's uh, fundamentally, you know, about economic relationships and class analysis is basically just looking um, at uh, society and, and understanding um. How different people relate to each other based off of the material conditions, which again is to say economics. And, and it's un- how we can even understand like how people act and, and where their, um, interests are, what their values are. Now, I definitely think that there's more going on than just, uh, class dynamics. Um, but that's a conversation for another day. Um, with class, and understanding society in terms of class, you have to recognize that um, in order for it to be useful, you need to like have kind of like big blocks that accurately kind of recognize like, this is a group of people and this other group of people uh, is like this. The reality is, is that um, we're kind of forcing people into to buckets and really if we want to get precise it's easy to like you know get into smaller and smaller buckets to get you know like these you know these are the goths and and these are the gutter punks and and uh, um and you know to look, to look at society in those terms but that's not very useful when it comes to understanding power dynamics um, so marx basically just based it off of like where's your source of income and even when he did that, he recognized that um he didn't he didn't really like try to resolve this problem. He just recognized it was a problem. Is that like source of income, you can get really specific on nuances of different kinds of sources of income. So um, you know, maybe someday we should talk about that. But for now, you know, the the reality is is like um some people have to sell their labor in order to. To pay the bills some people own a bunch of property and buildings and capital um and then you know some people um are the king um so that and th- that's basically what he recognized and you know just like okay good enough moving on okay so um when he was alive he used marx used terms like middle class petty bourgeoisie, peasants, and sometimes he was a little loose with them. But if we go back to talking about like, what's the source of income, then, um, you know, you recognize that the reason why uh, petty bourgeoisie and middle class are used interchangeably is because he's, he's basically talking about this um, group of people that's between the aristocracy and the workers or the peasants So that's middle class. And it was just the common vernacular at that time. Anyways, so where does the, what does like this term petty bourgeoisie mean? And I think, I think this is some of the more interesting stuff that I got to learn while writing this. Um, And I've picked up pieces here and there, and that's partially how I was able to pull it together. Um, But uh, so, you know, it's kind of funny, um, cause it, that actually the word bourgeoisie or something, uh, Berg, uh, the term Berg, um, that the, the root word actually means castle, which we're talking about the vampire castle. Um, don't take too much from that, but, um, so, but like literally, uh, you know, the Kings had castles, um, that was the burg and then um, eventually you had um merchants and um artisans that built up around those castles um which created some economic development and so then the the bourgeoisie originally was actually just like the city folk um but that you know over hundreds of years be- Uh, transitioned into being um, thought of as the, you know, the capitalists, the people who actually own stuff. They were, they tended to just be like the small capitalists, the petty bourgeoisie. Um, It took a long time before you actually had big capitalists. Um, You know, basically it took capitalism um, to get, to get there. Um, And then, you know, just a, a side note of, of while well, we talk about, like, petty bourgeoisie um, is that their politics are they actually often end up leaning um, kind of reactionary and education is not of the highest concern. I mean, certainly there's all kinds, but just speaking historically as a as a class, they've not focused on education, which. You know when we get to talking about the vampire castle is significant because mark fisher's talking about cancel culture in the context of these educated elite who are um essentially um bullying um each other and people from the working class okay so we talked about uh petty bourgeoisie Let's talk about the PMC for a moment. So in 1890 is like the um, progressive era. So we're talking, you know, more than hundred years ago, monopoly capitalism became a thing. So before monopoly capitalism, there was just capitalism. And I'm sure that there are technical terms for it, what phase of capitalism that Marx was writing about, but, you know, it's essentially the industrial age. But then capitalism developed to a certain point where you started having, you know, monopolies and um, the big, you know, the big, um, yeah, the big guys that owned the railways and oil and, um, and the big banks, that kind of stuff during that period, you had more wealth on earth than there'd ever been in human history. And it was radically transforming society. And it was creating a massive working class. Um, There's a whole conversation about where that, where those uh, workers came from, but they had to come from somewhere. They, um, they worked in factories, they worked on big farms, uh, they eventually started getting pretty frustrated with the working conditions and they were more militant and organized than, than they had ever been in human history. So, um while capital was doing better than it had ever done. Um, they also recognized that they were starting to have a problem. Uh, you know, this is of course Pinkerton times when, um, the cap, the bosses would send in the, um, private police in order to crush worker strikes in, in anything going on as far as, um, worker activity. And, um, that's basically the perfect opportunity for a new class of people that we think of as the professional managerial class um because uh you have engineers you have doctors you have people who essentially um help other people and organize society and try to bring um order and alleviate pain among the working class prior to monopoly capitalism but it isn't until monopoly capitalism that they um that the capitalists essentially have enough money in order to fund their existence as a unique class and they in return um offer to the capitalists uh some alleviation of the um agitation among the working class. So as the working class gets more and more militant and organized, the PMC grows as a class in order to um, address some of the needs of the workers. So they ex- explicitly, and this is very important, they explicitly, uh, according to the Reichs, see themselves as helping the workers. But they're also doing it in a way that's actually radically disruptive to the workers, and explicitly taking their power. So when Marx talks about class warfare, they're taking the power of the workers in the workplace uh, from the workers, and then creating them to be a more submissive class. So when I say that they uh, take power from the workers, Um, Significantly, what that means is uh, you have workers who have mastered their trade. Um, They know, you know, basically how shit gets done. And the capitalist is actually dependent upon the workers for their expertise in their trade or whatever. Well, um, the PMC, not in its entirety, but... uh, but as a major function of what they do is you start to have um what now we call like business process improvement um but essentially you get these um engineers who start to look at the production and the assembly line um you know look at uh ford and his um factory uh and you start to see um essentially a new class of people that is taking um that expertise out of the hands of the workers building it into the the pmc as a class and just into the processes and so then the workers become more plug and play and essentially you know if if somebody gets out of line they can be fired and and easily replaced and the assembly line keeps operating so um that's like the foundation i think of of what we need to talk about what's interesting in the pmc essays is that we they that part um is significant because they talk about kind of the material conditions of where the PMC comes from and who they are. And to this day, they still essentially play a similar function. Um, But then um, the Ehrenreichs have a part two to their essay where they start talking about um, the golden era of the PMC. So if you look at like, you know, 1870, they give this example of there being like literally like 5,000 engineers in society. And then 50 years later, there's like, I can't remember, but, um, it was, we'll just say 40 times as many engineers. So just an explosion of, uh, of that just one industry, but that's true of tons of, uh, industries by the fifties you have, um, you know, space program, you know, sixties, we land on the moon. Um, We have, um, yeah, just a a radically transformed society where the professionals have um, taken over government on some level. I mean, they were always the government workers, but government itself has dramatically grown in a way that, you know, 50 years later, it was not. And this, this, of course, today has, has become like a major feature of um, conservative politics about big government and stuff like that. it's the PMC that they're specifically calling out and often they use terms like the liberal elite and that kind of stuff. but um th- in the part two of the Ehrenreich essay, um, you know I just want to point out a, f- a few things that uh, you start to see this um, civil rights movement um and then, uh, which you know is is a really important moment. The children of the PMC in university start to support the civil rights movement. They start to recognize Vietnam and the basically like the role of America in um uh in the world as essentially imperialist and causing all kinds of um, being the oppressor, basically. And so the children of the PMC in the 60s essentially um, turn on their parents and the PMC as a as a class almost, but also turn on the working class so that the left is no longer the working class you know, is the working class like one and the same instead, it becomes, um, you know, something that is uh, crit- specifically like they offer a, a specific example, the port here on statement, which of course you can Google it and um, read for yourself that it's both critical of capitalism. So the PMC were remaining critical of capital and wanting their independence uh, and autonomy, um but then also critical of the working class for being racist and stuff like that. so um the left then kind of at that moment became more marginalized it, it of course, took decades before you know it transformed into what what we think of the left today, but that was a major um, moment um, in kind of like how we think of PMC politics today um, and the Vampire Castle. But it's also worth noting that there was a segment of the PMC that became anti-PMC and basically recognized like, oh, wait, we're actually oppressing working class people. And when I say that, it's even part of the civil rights movement, especially the Black Power movement. Like we're talking about working class people when we're talking about the black power movement and they specifically were, um, pushing for what was called community control. So basically imagine like, um, poor communities, they wanted to change the dynamic in the past. The PMC had gone into poor communities and tried to solve all of their problems for them in community control. The idea is that um, the Black Power Movement was basically saying the PMC is not allowed. (laughs) Social workers are not allowed to come in here and solve problems, Um, basically educated people who think that they know better. Instead, what we want is um, teach and empower um, our people to be able to take care of themselves whether that's, um, health, uh, services or, um, you know, learning, you know, how to, um, I apologize off the top of my head. I'm not coming up with good examples, but, um, there's a, is also something you can Google is community control. And I mentioned this because, um, it's kind of became like of a foundation, I think, for what, uh, that Aaron Reich saw as like a way out for the PMC to begin to repair their relationship um, with the working class. And then, um, as a side note, you know, I have this podcast, "The Working Class intelligentsia that's um, inspired by Gramsci's te- texts and in dialogue. I think that you know one of the frequently misunderstood concepts of Gramsci is the uh, organic intellectual but when we talk about community control that's what we're talking about is is empowering individuals to solve the problems of their class and so it's where like you know members of the community actually start to um solve their own problems as opposed to um allowing yeah pmc people to uh to do it, which is to say, education is good. um, But let's do it in a way that is actually uh, empowering people. So um, I will, I'm going to talk very briefly about neoliberalism, and then we'll get to the vampire castle. So neoliberalism, let's just say, starting with, uh, you know, Ronald Reagan, um, is a moment where like, capitalism fundamentally changed, where um, we're no longer in monopoly capitalism. We're no longer in the New Deal order. It's it's essentially a portion of the capitalist class turns their back on the PMC and starts to attack them. Uh, well, I say attack the PMC. That's a that's an important feature. I think that the working class actually you know receives a lot more harm under neoliberalism than uh, the PMC, but. An important piece is that uh the PMC no longer has this privileged position and now um must begin to uh, find new ways to justify their um privilege and economic power. And um I you know, i will I'll argue that uh, the vampire Castle that Mark Fisher talks about is essentially the PMC turning in on itself and against working class, which they'd already been doing, but, but specifically like, um, turning on each other, looking for, um, whatever, um, ethical superiority that they can in order to have some level of prestige because they're, you know, university jobs are going away. They're, um newspaper jobs you know journalist jobs are going away uh all all kinds of professional um positions um are either getting shipped overseas or just essentially the capitalists are saying we don't need to do that anymore um yeah we don't need to continue to invest in that um One moment while I just make sure I wrap this up. Yeah. Okay. So um, in, in the essay, I, you know, kind of enjoyed like dissecting uh, Mark Fisher's text and finding out all of the um, words that he uses to describe the vampire castle and I'll just say that like you'd be a moron to think that he's talking about the petty bourgeoisie um because you know the the terms that he uses um if you were to like you know describe the uh petty bourgeoisie on one side uh and the p m c on the other side that're like you know ninety eight percent on the p m c side, which is to say that you've got you know small business owners. And you've got professionals on the other side. And again, I'm oversimplifying, but um, they're they're two distinct groups of people. And they play very different roles in the economy. And um, it's clear that when Fisher's talking about the PMC and the, the problems he sees with, or sorry, the vampire castle and the problems he sees on the left, it's the PMC that he's talking about which I think means that um, it gives us some insight into the kinds of things that need to change on the left. I mean, we already knew that, but um, thinking in terms of PMC gives us a larger context in order to to um, frame that. And I recommend everybody just read the Bar- Barbara Ayer and John Ehrenreich essays. Um that are on the professional managerial class. Uh, they at the end of part two, especially, they basically say, you know, the PMC, the way out is not through basically just saying, um, the PMC should die and long live the working class. Instead, saying this, that like, that's not how reality works. Um, actually saying that, um, the two are kind of, uh, interlinked interconnected to each other. The PMC has caused a lot of harm to the working class and they must repent. Uh, That's significant, of course, again, today with like DSA and, and, you know, many socialists and internet socialists that, you know, they're PMC, we're PMC, and it's not about, you know, guilt and shame. Um, Instead, it's about essentially how do we create uh you know worker empowerment through labor movement and through community control that essentially is empowering people um to essentially live or to invest in their own communities and in their own democratic society and i think i've I think I've said everything I want to say. So thanks a lot. everyone.
2: Thank you so much, Elton. So while uh, Brian gets himself set up here, I'll just say a couple of things. Um, I, I think that it's been really inspirational to me to see the, this concept, this class category, this working understanding developing. Um, I say developing because I do not believe that until now there has been any understanding of this concept or of this class category Um, because the things that people say as a sort of knee jerk, reaction to the people you who use it kind of as a slur just to write people off exposes their lack of understanding. And understanding is not something that exists outside of human beings. There has not been a maintenance of this understanding. Uh, Catherine Liu is somebody who teaches on the concept of the PMC. She wrote the book Virtue Hoarders. Most people, if they've read anything on the concept, that's about it. It's a polemic. It's not a theoretical treatise. You cannot understand an academic topic via a polemic. You can only understand it through a treatise. So when people intervene on the field or actually disavow it and try to sidestep, actually taking responsibility for thinking through something that actually matters, that actually gets to objective class antagonisms in our society that don't go away and actually get worse if you try to suppress them or deny them, Um It it shows us that there is a lack of understanding. I do think Catherine Lou understands it, but the point is is that understanding for it to really mean something has to be just outside of your own head. It has to be something between us. It's something that we develop as a subject matter between us. And, of course, we might understand it differently. We might have our disagreements, but you don't understand a subject matter if you do not understand the constitutive disagreements in the field of that subject matter. And so that's why Elton and I taught the PMC course as the second course at Theory Underground. It is available on demand. Um, and we will probably do a continuation of that someday, hopefully. Um, Nance is one person who was involved in that course who started out by being like, I just don't really get much from this. And I actually basically disagree. Now you should ask him on tour what he thinks and how that's changed. Um, but suffice it to you say, I have
1: also changed my mind on it too and really shown me a lot that I kind of blew off at first. So I, apologize for being somewhat dismissive because no, this is worth doing worth learning from.
2: Thank you. Yeah. And Nance's piece in the underground theory is also on that topic. Basically Elton Nance and myself all talk about it in our own ways. Um, There are people who think that the underground theory reader or anthology is nothing more than like a post left reader, which is silly because nobody in there identifies as post left and nobody in there. Talks about the post left except for me. And I'm critiquing it by saying that it's a form of lefter than thou enjoyment that is the same as anti leftism and leftism itself. And that all three of those fall into the same form of enjoyment, which is getting jouissance by telling somebody they're not really left. They're not really, they're not the real McCoy. Right. And so, anyway, so check it out. Uh, But look, Brian's back. He's ready to go. Uh, And he's going to close this motherfucker out okay and then uh for the people here in in Boise um uh, some of us will be getting some Indian food in a few hours. Uh, we'll probably all take a break for a couple hours and then reconvene for the Indian food. Talk to Holly about it if you want to be there because she's going to be making sure the space and the the, the the food selections and everything are good for you. And if you got a lot out of this and want to have conversations with us, you're welcome. So everyone here is welcome. Uh, to the people on the internet, you could just jump on a plane and fly over here. Probably in the next three hours, you could, you could get Indian food too. It's really good. I, I think it would probably be worth it. But anyway, okay. Brian, um, as by way of introduction, um, Brian, when he was 16 years old, he ran away from home and did a bunch of uh, substance abuse things with people on the West Coast and was just kind of like Nance, like a gutter punk kid getting in trouble. Uh, hippie. Okay. I, I, a, a whole, I just think crusty, but of course there is this distinction between gutter punk and hippie, but they're both crusty. Um But he, you know, something that saved his life as well as mine and a lot of the people here was getting into um, ideas, getting into literature, creative writing. Um, And so now he continues to do that, uh, not just for himself, but for other people who are struggling to find any meaning, much less place in this world. And so he works with and has worked with for years um, children who are not making it in this education system. Um, there's a million reasons not to make it. Um, I'm surprised when anyone does make it. Whenever anyone is okay in this society, the real question is: is what's wrong with them? Um, but and I, I get into that in the time energy book. You know, this is the structural stultification of time energy. Uh, I get into education and schooling and, and its role. But that's kind of where he and I have always jived. Our conversations always kind of come back to what is the good life what is real education? What is meaningful work in education? Uh, What can these institutions do better? To what degree can these things be reformed? Um, To what degree do we need actual alternatives? Um, And we've collaborated in a million ways over the course of, I don't even know how long at this point, but it's been a while. And some of my previous experiments were like basically projects with Brian. And so we've read a lot of books together with other people. And so um, I watched him get into philosophy by jumping into the deepest end possible at the time. He got into reading Being in Time, uh, which I'm currently teaching a course on at Theory Underground. Division two begins in January 2024. um, So people have a chance to catch up on division one. Um, But, you know, it was reading that book and him, the the amount of time he spent being lost and confused. It really showed me like he, he cares about education in that sense where it's like he doesn't mind being confused. In fact, he, he he welcomes the opportunity to get lost in something and to struggle with it for its own sake. And so um, that's Brian. I love him. And put your hands together to welcome him up here. Thank you.
8: Sitting on the stool. Uh, all right. Uh, yeah, uh, I think the topic of today is, or of this bit of today is thinking is hard. Um, I don't think it comes naturally to me. I've struggled for many years, um, to feel like I have anything to say. Um, and the piece I have in underground theory is kind of a result of, uh, many years of struggling with that exact idea. Um, because I know like at a sort of intellectual level that like, even if the thinking uh, is unfinished, there's still something worthwhile to be said or to be written. Writing is a process in its own right. Um, yet I was brought up in sort of the academic environment that to, to kind of believe or have internalized that everything you ever write needs to be finished and needs to be uh, definitive uh, as far as representing your thinking on an on a topic. And, and the truth is, is, you know, we, we taught this class on, um, Carl Jaspers is the idea of the university. I have a master's degree in education. I'm really interested in, in what's right and wrong with the way we educate our people in the United States and the Western world and the world in general. Um, I think there's a lot to say for it and there's a lot to say against it. Um, but I have like a, a uh Google Sheet with a bunch of titles of books that are going to take me at minimum the next five years to get through before I probably will be willing to say, like, I'm taking this stand. That said, I don't want to do the simple thing. It's like, well, we shouldn't take a stand at all, and we should look at things from all sides. um if you haven't taken the for they know not what they do course. Mikey has a great, probably like hour long lecture in the first lecture talking about exactly why Zizek hates that point of view. Um, from the introduction, that really kind of was inspiring for me because I have spent many years kind of like without any sort of metaphysical ground. Like I don't always know exactly what I believe, um, but I don't necessarily just want to deconstruct everything to death, um, which is the tendency when you don't know exactly where you stand. Um, But I wanted a a way to write something that is actively trying, like demonstrate the process of thinking through something. So my piece for theory or underground theory is more of an art piece than a a theoretical piece. Um, It's me contemplating ideas that are interesting to me um, and my backgrounds in creative writing anyway. So that's what made sense to me. I think before I start, it's worth noting. um, I'm going to be talking about Ray Bradbury, George Eliot, Tolkien, Dostoevsky and not always saying that's what I'm doing. Um, so you might catch that. And, um, there's some block quotes from Agamben, uh, sort of contextualizing this idea of inoperativity, which is a concept he spends over a thousand pages trying to figure out what it means. But, um, for the sense of this, I think it's worth knowing that, uh, an activity is operative basically when its goal is to result in some sort of completion or have an effect on the world. And, um, the inoperative is those things that we do that aren't intended to be complete. Um, they're done for their own sake. And, um, and for Agamben, contemplation or just thinking through things is, is an inoperative act and it is a political act and it's an artistic act. Um, whether or not you agree with the rest of the things he does i think that is very valuable for me in thinking through um how to say something when you're not done how to talk about something you're not done thinking about um or how to write it and that's what this piece is trying to do is just to be inoperative um it's not done um it's called running in the shadows i'm just going to read the whole thing it's not it's probably one of the shorter things in the volume running in the shadows Vignettes and Constellations. One, oh, to see the moon rise behind behind the dark mountains, the prismatic flare in the clouds. Why am I running? Because I love being in this body? Why am I thinking? <clears throat> because I love being in this mind. Why differentiate the two? Life is something that I solve each day. When the moon crosses Orion's belt lingering there in the dark winter sky, I forget. Will I remember when I wake? Gentlemen, let this arrow pierce the body, soul, and mind. As you already know, we dwellers of the underground are always addressing you, gentlemen. Gentlemen, I am not a philosopher. Do not call me that. I am master of nothing. The credentials you gave me, you can have back. I won't be needing them. Montag is all kerosene. Clarice McClellan knows that leaves in autumn's smell of cinnamon and clove. Forgive me for speaking bluntly. The trees are evacuating the universities and repopulating the forest. Two. Block quote from Agamben's Creation and Anarchy. We therefore understand the essential function that the tradition of Western philosophy has ascribed to the contemplative life and inoperativity. The properly human praxis is that which, by rendering inoperative the specific works and functions of the living being, makes them, so to speak, run on idle, and in this way opens them to possibilities. Contemplation and inoperativity are, in this sense, The metaphysical operators of anthropogenesis, which, by freeing the human creature from every biological or social destiny and from any predetermined task, make him available for that particular absence of work we are accustomed to call politics and art. Politics and art are neither tasks nor simply works. They name rather the dimension in which linguistic and bodily, material and immaterial, biological and social operations are deactivated and contemplated as such. Three, there's a striking difference between Tolkien's Lord of the Rings trilogy and Peter Jackson's film adaptation that takes place early on in The Fellowship of the Ring. In the film version, Gandalf, who had been aware of Bilbo's ring, catches a wicked glimpse in Bilbo's eye and immediately conjectures that it is the Ring of Power and urges Frodo in his quest that very night. As Frodo begins his journey, Gandalf is depicted on a journey of his own, poring through texts and getting caught up with Saruman before escaping on the back of an eagle and meeting Frodo and company in Rivendell. Just before, just a short while after Frodo's departure from the Shire. Tolkien, on the other hand, wrote this process completely differently. After recognizing that something is off with the ring, Gandalf disappears for 17 years, during which it's suggested later in the book, he was completely engulfed in the task of trying to discover the truth about Bilbo's ring. Frodo, meanwhile, clueless of the danger he was in, went about his life, eating and wandering in the nearby hills beyond Bag End, as if nothing had changed but the absence of Bilbo, who had retired from the Shire. While the Jackson version confirms to its audience the naive belief that certain individuals, through keen observation, can quickly ascertain some of the most complex moral and political truths, Tolkien implicitly recognizes the difficult, all-consuming path required to make sense of the world around us. And today's university largely supports and encourages the former simplistic view that certain smart people can quickly learn and discern important truths and the rest of the population should follow their lead. A key characteristic, I think, of any underground intellectual movement ought to be the insistence on fostering an attitude toward thinking as singular devotion to life's most perplexing problems and truths without end. Fourth, thoughts on inoperativity. A problem for the university is that the inoperative is illegible and institutional function demands legibility. Universities must remain legible or they lose funding. The underground need not. Agamben considers the Franciscan doctrine of use as the prime example of the inoperative. Francis owned nothing, not even his clothes. His habit was in his use, but not his possession. His life was beyond the reach of the church. Here, creation and contemplation take on a relationship to potential. In the underground, knowledge is in the use of the thinking mind, not possessed. Use is in the mess born of the potential to know and potential to miss the mark. Today's university assembles knowledge like the farmer their crop, neat rows, void of complexity. Predictable harvest, crop is good until the soil is spent. Five, thoughts undwelling. I wonder to what extent the problem of being in the world needs to be further worked out in consider- consideration of settled and unsettled dwelling in societies. It seems like Dasein is perpetually unsettled existentially, yet often desiring settlement. It also appears to be suggested through modern science that movement, unpredictability, and certain stresses have beneficial effects. This, though, only speaks to our empirical bodily existence. The mind does its own productive wandering. In what way are body and mind existentially united? What can we learn from the tension that arises in the mutual desire to settle and wander? How does this problem relate to a pervasive sense of homelessness and nihilism? As Jasper's rightly observed, science keeps philosophy in check by demanding that philosophy recognize its revelation of certain kinds of truth. As such, it'd be inappropriate for the existential and political philosopher to neglect clear evidence that sedentary lives have observable deleterious effects on individuals, both physically and cognitively. Science, on the other hand, is checked when we point out that this is all that science can tell us. These are the facts of the matter. As soon as we start making value judgments about this fact, we have begun philosophizing. And this is serious business. We should not accept what seems obvious just because it seems so. We should really put time and effort into thinking about what this truth can tell us about who and what humans are and how we should live and organize society as a result. Six, the books aren't important, Montag. It's what they contain. Gandalf lived for thousands of years and had the luxury of time. We depend on those who came before to get us started thinking. Likewise, those who come after depend on us. Clarice demanded the thinking life and is nowhere to be found. The path is perilous. Choose wisely. Seven, I've tried hard to be a linear thinker, but Tom Tom Bombadil's yellow boots are dancing through my mind. I don't want to be readable anyway. Eight, it should be readily obvious that self-preservation is of utmost importance for the university. Truth, on the other hand, constantly disrupts the will to preserve. Preservation requires legibility. This, I think, is a fundamental contradiction that universities as institutions act as if they have reconciled when in fact they haven't. Natural science with its universally valid claims to a certain type of truth has situated itself at the center of the university in such a way to mask a fundamental contradiction from plain sight. We need spaces outside the university beyond the influence of state and corporate power structures. The state and the market demand a certain kind of organization are structured to fundamentally reward the conservators of institutions and suppress the critics who shine light on certain realities that undermine such structures. Any fidelity to truth that a university proclaims is empty. This is not to say that those of us who go underground are prophets and wielders of greater truth than the rest of the populace. What it means is that we are not beholden to behave in such a way as to preserve anything and thus open the potential, not actuality, of seeing the world with fresh eyes. Eleven, how shall we put it? Intellectual outlaws, guerrilla academics, underground theorists... Homo Soccer booted from the tower. Silas Marner was expelled from the church and lived out his days spinning garments and hoarding gold before learning to love. The yarn we weave is thought, and we have come to the conclusion that our thread is not enough. We can't weave alone. Like Marner, who could, could only love after every penny was stolen in the night, in order to think freely, we must go beyond possession and acquisitiveness, the hoarding of knowledge at the center of the university practice, and recognize ourselves as those, as those who use truth, knowledge, and wisdom to live, but possess none of it. It is a gift freely given and freely shared. Ten, these vignettes full of grandiosity and presumption speak using the royal we Obviously, I speak for no one but myself and do not attempt to swim in the thoughts of others. Who then is this we who speaks? Well, don't overthink these perfumes. I contain multitudes. 11. At any moment, what makes the whole person is unattainable. The whole life is only experienced right now through the contemplation of past and future, but never by experience. The whole truth is always limited to present understandings and vantage point. The world to which our being is inextricably linked is always beyond us. If scholarship is to treat the whole man, it must be conducted in a way and setting in which these limitations are not experienced as limitations. Truth-seeking is never finished, and this is the problem with any system of education and research which is structured with definitive beginnings and ends. Research of the kind most valuable to, to humanity is inoperative. We need universities, but they cannot be all. We also need spaces and communities where people form any walk, people from any walk of life can come together as whole people in search of the illusory truths of life who believe that the liberal arts were named that precisely because they strive for liberation, personal and social. Those who want to form their life around this principle need space and community in which to do so. Universities are indeed that space for some, and this is to the good, but they, by virtue of their social role and ties to the state, cannot be that for all or even most. 12, the trade-off for every new development in information technology, which makes individuals and communities more legible is increased vulnerability to abusive states. Simplification makes legible. Philosophy and theory ought to resist simplification and make possible the maintenance of complexity. 13, them teachers be feeding us mush grown in dead soil, but we got us a whiff of cinnamon in the forest. 14 montag is on the run he has burned his house his things his books his fellows he has traded his clothes for those of another man he is jumping in the river he is leaving nothing behind not even his scent what awaits a man like this death life resurrection how could he know he is in orbit under a night sky full of potential 15 james c scott in the art of not being governed showcases how, throughout history, a not insignificant number of people people groups around the world, in response to the terror inflicted by settled agrarian states and kingdoms, banded together and turned to the hills where they were able to maintain autonomy. Over the last 100 to 150 years, this is all but ceased due to advances in technology and infrastructure that are able to reach areas that were previously inaccessible without strenuous effort. As a movement, it may be tempting for some to idealize the anarchic rejection of the state through the formation of mountain dwelling bands. But first, that's not possible today, and we have to work within a framework of the world we were thrown into. Second, considering the structure of the world as it is today, even if one could make a space beyond the watchful eye of the state, is this desirable? Is this the lesson to take from the past? Maybe today's outlaws ought to remain dwellers in a world of mega mega cities connected to everything by highways, physical and virtual. Maybe the lesson buried in all of Scott's work is the need to find a way to preserve intellectual autonomy in a highly curricularized data-driven legible world. 16, from Agamben, highest poverty. Certainly thanks to the doctrine of use, the Franciscan life could be affirmed unreservedly as that existence which is situated outside the law which must abdicate the law in order to exist. And this is certainly the legacy that modernity has shown itself to be incapable of facing and that our time does not seem to be at all in a position to think. But what is the life outside the law if it is defined as that form of life which makes use of things without ever appropriating them? And what is use if one ceases to define it solely negatively with respect to ownership? 17. In the final pages of Ray Bradbury's classic Fahrenheit 451, Guy Montag, who's on the run after turning against his occupation as a professional book burner and instead stealing away books here and there, finds himself joining a group of wandering ex-professors and intellectuals who no longer have a place in society. After the leader, Granger, explains that these wanderers do not possess any books, as that would be a safety risk, but instead have developed a method, method for perfect recall and each member holds their own set of thinkers and writers in their mind, Granger lets Montag in on the most important truth, the bond that holds them together. 18. We do not reject the university outright. We simply do not belong to it. It is not our master. We seek to be pupils only of truth. 19. In the face of annihilation, we are everywhere, and not one of us is important.
2: We lost most of the people, obviously, at this point, because not everybody just has a entire free Saturday. And that would be, I mean, that would be a lot of free time, you know, But people don't have that much free time. And so, uh, but there are a handful of people who've actually been able to stay this whole time. And uh, I want to give people an opportunity to at least just say a thing. You can ask a question. You can say a thing that's on your mind. You can be like, you can even take the microphone. And be like, "Fuck you, Dave. I don't care. I just want to give you your opportunity to say something." And so, Anne's got the microphone. Um, I'm gonna see if I can. How do I work this? Okay, here we go. I'm gonna make the uh, local. I'm gonna make. The rooms show so everyone can see you all. Some of you are off camera, but maybe if you take the microphone, just make sure you're in camera for that laptop over there. Um, Sean, Josh, Marilyn, anyone else who's here in the Zoom call, you can also put your hand up if you want to say something in close. But yeah, we just want to give everyone else a moment to
6: say something. So, okay, Dave. <laughs> that
5: microphone's not on yet. Oops. <laughs> come on, I'm ready. I'm ready. Let me know when
2: it's
5: on. Fuck you, Dave. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> really?
2: Oh, she can. and can definitely get, get away with that. Uh. Well, come on. We don't have all day. Come on. Who wants to say something?
0: I just
5: did. I guess one you, no one asked to No one
2: yeah nobody wants to you don't have to everyone's happy Let's close this thing That's out
5: going twice
3: yeah and what's your name man i'm my name is hunter um welcome yeah uh so obviously i'm like new to all of this um i'm 18 um and finding this was super super interesting i follow czex work and a lot of others and want to learn more about high digger being in time all of that um I have so many questions, but one that I want to ask right now is how did you guys get together to form, uh, theory underground as like, um, non, non-institution of course, but as a place of learning or whatever, because it seemed like, obviously it sound it sounds great, but it's just like, uh, it almost sounds like too good to be true. Like very, like I'm, I'm very skeptical, right? Cause yeah. it's just like, oh yeah, we're all going to just learn and it's just going to be great. And it's like I, establishing credibility and making sure there's that academic quality. Like I, how, I, I don't know how, like, could you tell me more about that or any of you?
2: It's a really good question to ask on a video where a lot of people are probably finding out about it for the first time because of the Zizek interview. So a lot of people will just watch it for that. And then a handful of you all will watch it to the end. And uh, so it's good to quilt it on this point, right? Um, and it is, it is too good to be true because it is a failure in the making. And so <laughs> theory underground is meant to fail fast, but that's education and that's learning itself, right? Is discovering limitations by running into them. Um, and so some previous failures or experiments that I've been involved in were with various clubs on and off campus Uh, at North Idaho College, and then at Boise State University, Uh, as well as things that I did with Elton's Dead Parrot Philosophical Society. Brian and I did Victory Farm Center for the Humanities for about a year and a half. Um, And before that, I had other things that I did that clubs that were kind of on and off campus and mixing intellectual things with like slacklining and hiking and stuff like equilibrium or like new Symbolization project. When we, the, the one I used to bring uh, Richard Wolf and other people to, t- to Boise state, um, all of these experiments and organizing, I think just, it just has a lot to do with my drive in a very like uh, Zizekian sense. It's like, I desire to be an intellectual, but I also have to organize and the organizing usually hijacks the intellectual work gets in the way of it even, and I'm not even very good at it. And so that's part of the problem in these previous organizations that I've been involved in. Um, you know, maybe sometimes I was like a vice president or a president or something, but there's usually like a board or there's like a central committee or there's like, whatever, there's officers in the club. And, um, what I was finding was that, I have like bursts of energy and I'll get, I can get a lot done, but if I have to like wait on a lot of other people to also let them like do stuff or like we have to agree on things, you know what I mean? Like decentralization and, and actually all working together as a team. Um, by the time we actually get to making it happen, I've already lost the the initial impulse. I'm already over it. I I wanted to do that three months ago. Now I'm fucking over it, man. Right. And that is a very much like a a me problem. And so I knew that I needed something that allows me to harness my bursts of energy into something that doesn't just fizzle out or go away. And so that's the idea of like the self-contained platform that is just my own baby. Like Theory Underground is a platform with courses on it. Uh, There can be other instructors involved. But, you know, I, get, I basically invite them to do a course with me or to teach a course. And once it's up, after the fact, it's still available on demand. That part is very important to me. I talk about it in the introduction to underground theory. I say that I've been keeping an eye on levers in, from academia, people who are professors who decide to go online and teach instead to the, uh, maybe on YouTube, or I use the example of Thaddeus Russell with his Renegade University podcast or Justin Murphy with his other life podcast and the newsletter that he does for that. And I kind of say, you know, at first I was really like watching them being like, oh, this is new. But then as I was watching it, I was like, well, they are doing some educational stuff, but they lack that thing that I was also having a problem with, which is that, well, once they burn out on it or once the course is over, then it just goes away. And then they're not reminded of it. They don't have to return on it to it. They don't dwell on it. And so part of the idea with your underground is to make it so that any course that we do is then available after the fact on demand for people. Let's just say someone who's really getting into the stuff who comes later is able to binge all those courses for, and that wouldn't, that's not currently possible with a lot of these other um, alternative experiments. Um, And if it is possible, or for instance, the new center for research and practice, I'm a friend of the center and I love it. Um, I think it's really important work that they do but a lot of it's discussion based. And so a video on demand is not really worth much if you're not in the discussion. And so if you go and you're watching a whole course on say Deleuze's difference in repetition, Mikey and I did that course with Levi Bryant. It was a great course. We got a lot out of it, but if you go back and watch it, it's mostly like seminar style discussion group. Deer Underground aims to be a lecture course site. And we also have a social media aspect, right? So the uh the app is buggy as hell. I don't think it's even working for Nance and I, but it's working for Holly for some reason. A lot of people aren't even getting the notifications that go out, but the idea is to inspire so so the reason it's it's destined to failure is because my hands are so wrapped up in every single little part of it that once I become a father uh, or or get a life in some other capacity, it's it's good luck. Good luck keeping it going. And, and, and me to, to even train up the people to be able to run it and then make it an institution that could actually run without me doing everything um, would require so much time that it's like, I don't even know if it's possible. But my goal is not an institution that will outlast me, but an idea that will outlast me because I want to inspire educators everywhere to be able to turn their research programs that they need for their own sake into something that's useful for other people, and to be able to see that there might be a world wherein they don't rely on the institutions. and that's not to say the institutions need to go away, but I think the institutions would probably um, cut a lot of the bullshit if they had to compete against people like me if the if the institutions actually got to a point where learning webs between singular island, self-contained educators with their own projects, if a learning web network became so fucking rich and exciting and people were learning so much, the university is going to be like, uh, how is it that we're spending such a, so much of everybody's money and getting them what in return, right? A really expensive diploma. That is what, so you can get a job because the neoliberalization of the university, as Anne talks about in her underground theory piece, has turned it into just a really expensive thing you do for a job, which has nothing to do with the idea of inoperativity, which is Brian's idea, right? Or it's a gombin's, but he's drawing upon that. Really, skole, the root, the Greek root of school, is about leisure time that doesn't have to do anything, um, but is just pursuing the fields of consciousness Or the fields of knowledge opened up to consciousness um, by human collaboration and inquiry for their own sake, because it's liberating. These things are liberating in and of themselves. And so, um, yeah, it's great if kids of the elite can pad out their CV with some courses or hanging out with some professors, maybe cultivate their minds a little bit before they go off and join the institutions and and focus on their their uh, careers, like. I've got nothing against that, but there's got to be a place for people who just want to do it for its own sake, who don't want to have to uh, get caught up in the 15 to 20 year precarity loop of chasing uh, tenure, which is increasingly less likely because the neoliberalization means you hire three adjuncts instead of one full-time professor. And those adjuncts have no protections. If they say anything that gets them in trouble, they're gone forever um and so everyone's walking on eggshells and people are like oh well that's just twitter or oh that's just the internet that's just activists or whatever today no the people who are the most afraid of this climate of fear and silencing are the ones who don't even have social media and in my experience the professors who don't have social media the reason they don't have it is because it is actually like this specter that haunts them every waking day right like they are not terrified of some cosmic justice that's coming to get them no they're terrified of the fact that there's constantly moving goalposts in the discourse and that if they're not hip on the, keeping up with the joneses of what you're supposed to say and not say then the, it could come back to bite them in the ass and that has created a complete breakdown in um dialectics in discourse in inquiry um and so people are more afraid to um speak than ever before. And I call that a genocide of voice in my piece in underground theory. And so, you know, it, the university is too good to be true. And, and, and it's, and it is also a failure. Um, And the idea of the university as like this thing that we all esteem, which is a community of truth seekers coming at the fields of knowledge from different perspectives and then trying to bring their specialization back to some conception of the whole through dialogue with one another, that idea of the university is itself impossible. But we need impossible ideas to try to guide our efforts. And the goal of Theory Underground is to be a new impossible ideal. And that is at that point that you feel like You've sacrificed everything to just research and live in the life of the mind and educate other people at the point that you realize all of that sacrifice is amounting to nothing. You don't actually get to do the research you want. You don't actually get to teach the courses you want. You don't actually get to have real conversations with other people. And the students there have their earbuds in and are bullshitting their way through your course because ultimately they're more worried about the job and getting laid and drinking, which is great. But you know what I mean? At that point that you realize all of your sacrifices amounting to nothing, more and more people leave the institutions. But when they leave the institutions right now, there's not a very serious, seriously plausible path towards being able to actually do what you want to do. Automation, AI, and the sophisticated tools at our disposal through everything we have today um, in terms of uh, WordPress and its plugins, um, in terms of uh, all these different functions that are now available that we are able to stack and integrate into new experiments didn't exist 10 years ago, didn't exist 20 years ago, didn't exist 100 or 1,000 years ago. This is the first time that that any one ex-professor is able to do all of it on their own. And I've officially proven that even though it's buggy as shit and it's spontaneous and like last minute and people can't keep up with it or get the newsletters or ever really plan their lives around it very well, I'm still doing it. And just, and, and yeah, I'm not going to do it as great as I would want to, but other people should be able to look at what I'm doing and go, well, I'm smarter than Dave. If he can do it, I can do it too. And that's the goal is to be able to be like, yes, you can. Um, and if you're not as bipolar and fucking frenetic with your energy, like, so you have it and then you can do an amazing amount of things in a couple of days, but then you can't do anything for like another week. If if you're a bit more stable and like even keel and you have a, you actually have a house under your feet and you have an income, um, but you actually see a path forward where you can do it, I think that there will be others who go way beyond whatever comes to theory underground. But I honestly think it's probably going to be a decade until anything like it exists, right? Because right now it's too many new things. I can't really get into the functionality of the website too much right now, but it's too many things. It's it's so many things all in one place. And though I have all these threads and sometimes they slip out and I'm not able to get people updated on something, or there might be a spelling error on the book cover or whatever. It is there. I have my own app. I do not rely on a university for that app it does have courses on it and the people involved are getting a lot out of it and having fun. And so to me, that's what matters is that we're doing what we love with people. We love doing it with as Cadell says. And so Cadell last is doing similar stuff at philosophy portal. He's another experimental educator who has a piece in the underground theory uh, volume. But um, yeah, that's, that's my, that's my short answer. (laughs) You'd hate to hear my wrong answer.
6: <laughs>
2: yeah, you are. Wrong answers are for hikes, for sure. But anyway, Hunter, it's really nice to meet you though. Yeah. Uh, we have oh, yeah, share the mic. Share the mic so the people online can hear. And then we'll go to Sean after, Holly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
6: right. I'll, I'll
7: give you, yeah, and I'll give you details uh later but we have yeah a group that meets and we've had represent representation today yeah Aaron here and um sorry for calling you out and Rebecca as well um and yeah we've been meeting for more than 10 years and it's just a once a month um meeting where I try to come up with like you know 10-15 pages that isn't too hard to read um it's okay if it's the first time you've encountered it and some yeah sometimes they're intelligible on their own sometimes they're unintelligible on their own um but it's you know it's that learning process um it's more dialogue based as opposed to lecture I try to not lecture so (laughs) yeah
2: Yes. My biggest critique of Elton is his refusal to lecture, but it's also his strength is his, he, what he does is he, he sets up the the space. He, he kind of gives everybody the quick summary on the piece, assuming that they didn't read it because they don't have the time energy, which is always a good assumption. And then you see where the conversation goes. And those kind of conversations are very important. Also, you'll want to talk to Brian. He also does a lot of just reading group stuff that is like right now they're all reading Moby Dick, you know? Um, and so, yeah, uh, we'll come back here in a second to the IRL side, but Sean, uh, you've been so patiently waiting. I do want to give you your opportunity here. So, um, let's make sure you come through on the speaker here.
9: Yeah. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. And My internet connections just got really weird. So, uh, hopefully you can hear me, but, uh, but yeah, uh, yeah i just want to say to like uh add to what dave was saying like what i find valuable about uh theory underground is just that uh like i think we live in a world in which we really um are taught to think that if it's outside of the major institutions it's not legitimate um which i think is like just like the death of the mind in a lot of ways like like uh I know i felt this really strongly i managed to go to a couple years of uh university and uh i uh don't do what i did for sure like is talk about inherent transgression don't write essays arguing that the prompt that your professor gave you is not legitimate <laughs> um, you want to talk about inherent transgression uh yeah don't sabotage yourself is what i would say but like uh yeah like But that said, like, what was motivating me to do that was just, like, this just rage that, like, we are not, I can tell, like, we are not here to talk about truth. Like, that is just painfully obvious. Like, and so, like, if I could go back in time, what I would do is just, like you know, sort of bracket that to the side and like still get like good grades at college, you know, (laughs) we're going to put that away for a minute. I'm going to keep that in mind. But like, you know, Um, but like, uh, instead, I like just had to externalize it like immediately. And, uh, and, uh, but anyway, like, I just think that like, it's, uh, it's a huge problem that we live in that world that like, that everything has to be captured by the institution like uh derek varne if you guys know who that is like some of you i know do is that uh he says that like uh this is just an example like the, the mfa masters of fine arts is literally created to to break up radical communities and take artists out of it and institutionalize them like that's literally like the explicit stated purpose of like why that exists this is according to him um, so I don't have the like I can't cite that and like prove it right now but like this is what he says and he's he's a really smart dude um and usually he backs up everything he fucking everything he says so like uh but if you want to look into that maybe it's wrong maybe it's not I don't know but like uh but yeah anyway like we live in a world that's just like one example of like the millions of ways in which everything is just increasingly captured by the institutions and we really it's I think it's really common uh common sense to think that like if you didn't do it inside of a capitalist institution, a corporation or inside of like some other kind of bureaucratic institution, it doesn't matter. And I just think that like, we need to do things for ourselves. And this is what I see happening in theory underground is like, that's not what life's about is serving an institution of any kind. Life, li- What life's about is like just doing what you want because you fucking want to do it. And that's it. And that's all there is to it. Like at, at root, we can, we can talk so much. It gets really like over intellectualized, but at the root of it, it oversimplified like that's what it's about you know is like and, and and if we don't go back and seize that then I think like we're really giving up our souls in this in, in a way you know um to these institutions of, of many different kinds whether they're public or private uh so anyway yeah yeah right. just no, we're, we're not the appendage of an institution you're not you know you're an end an, an in and of yourself you know so um workers everywhere are. So that
2: I just want to add. Thanks, Sean. Yeah. Every, every, every meaningful movement, every movement in politics, every movement in thought, it comes from a robust intellectual milieu that exists between a bunch of people in the world who are doing things that they don't see existing institutions addressing and, what you're talking about, just doing what you want at the end of the day, like and being able to pursue it obsessively and not stop just because oh the clock's oh time's up, time to think about the next thing or oh oh I just have to keep teaching the same course six times a day for the, for ten years at a time you know no, the point of time energy is to a, a more thoroughly fleshed out conception of freedom, and uh, being able to direct it for oneself is the definition of freedom and not being able to do that is the definition of slavery going back 2,500 years. Being slavish was, there was two meanings to it. One was not having control over yourself. So you couldn't stop yourself from doing things that you found despicable or or like, oh, I eat so much. I just can't stop. Oh, I gamble so much. I just can't stop. Okay, well, that's slavish. That's like, you don't have freedom because you aren't able to choose and to will what you actually want. And then the other definition of slavery was obviously the more classical one, which is uh, you don't get to choose what you do. Someone else will choose what you do. And we like to pride ourselves for having emancipated the slaves in this country. Um, But as I talk about in time energy, what we really did was we universalized slavery for everybody right it, it goes beyond the fact that there is actually existing slaves still making our iPhones and you know video gaming consoles it goes beyond that to the fact that whether you are rich or poor you don't have time energy to do with it as you will instead you have to fight to survive or thrive but it requires constant fighting in ways and doing things that probably doesn't matter. And so of course, like our entire educational experiences is usually like being told, Oh, but you just have to find the thing that you're good at and then get paid for that. That would be the dream. And it's like, what about the dream of being something beyond what you're paid for? Right. You can be a plumber, you can be a doctor, you can be a whatever, but that's not your main thing in life. And the things that you have over and above that aren't just hobbies that you do sometimes, but instead it's like, no, you speak five languages and play multiple instruments and travel the world and get to know people and maintain friendships. Like that is not a vision of humanity that we were being sold because it's not something that's easy to sell. And the thing is, is like time energy is not something that you can sell, right? Capitalism cannot commodify it. And all existing alternatives to capitalism also presupposed most people working most of the time. So, what we need is a new idea of freedom. And that's basically it. I think we should close out because we're basically at time. Uh, our goal is to be finished here just about now. Um, and so we actually have to get out of this venue space uh, at a reasonable time, and that requires uh, packing things up. And so,, uh, for the people who are here, uh, you can all um, ask uh, uh, Nance or myself if 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 you can help, and we'll we'll, we'll but I think, yeah. We'll reconvene, uh, in Boise in a couple hours and Hunter talked or an Eagle, sorry. And then, uh, Hunter, I'd like to talk to, uh, I, I have a gift for you, um, that I'd like to share, uh, after, after this is done recording, Mikey, you just turned on your camera. You get the last word. What do you want to say?
1: Yeah, I just want to say thank you. Thank Ann, Marilyn, Nance, Brian Elton, everybody was here. Um, I mean this the interview went better than I even expected it would um so super happy with with that um I love how he talked about the ethics of psychoanalysis getting him to talk about land is you know that was pretty special um I think that'll be quite a clip um but yeah it's just a great day um proud of you can't believe that uh Underground Theory is out. Time Energy is out. So just a great day.
2: Yeah, man. And uh, we'll see you. We'll see you at the live yep. event in Kansas City at Prospero's Bookstore on Sunday, the 10th of this month. Mikey will be presenting on Wage Labor and Jouissance by the left needs Zizek.
1: Mm-hmm. Will do. All right, All right everybody. Take care. Us. All right. Later.